Dorothy and Rachel Leland, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. We are so excited to have you folks on the podcast today. Matt and I have been waiting for this interview for a long, long time. And while we were talking offline, we did confess to Rachel that this is a podcast that has been three years in the making. And thankfully, Rachel and Dorothy did take some time to uh, to recount uh, their journey together uh, in a book uh, that hasn't been published yet. Dorothy, help me out with that. Has it? That, oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's mm -hmm. out. It's available. It's been out since October. Well, yeah. well, well, thank you for doing that, and uh, and I'm sorry for we're so late in this interview, but the uh, the uh, the book has now been published, and I have to tell you, folks, I absolutely love this book. Uh, you know, from beginning to end, it is just a brilliantly written book. And we here at Take Boot Camp, um, you know, define Lyme disease as a family disease, right? This is not a disease that one person suffers. It's really a community disease. We do describe it as a family disease. Because it's not just the person who is dealing with, uh, you know, this terrible disease that it affects, but it also affects the entire family. And I don't think there's a book that has been written that has captured the essence of how uh, how this disease affects and impacts an entire family the way this book has. So I, that's one of my sort of advanced praises for the two of you for the really brilliant book that you've written. So, but before I you know, before I go off too much, Rachel, why don't say first, first say hi to the folks? Right, your uh, your mom is is a veteran of this podcast, uh, so she'll say hi second, but please say hi to the folks and describe yourself to um, to our community. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> Hello, um, I'm Rachel. Boy, describe myself. Um, I, uh, I'm 32 years old and I live in the Pacific Northwest in Washington. And I am a very excitable, happy person for the most part. I get um, easily excited, which I can tell Rich, you and I are going to get along really well. I like your personality. Um, and yeah, I'm just really happy to be here. So Dorothy, uh, as a veteran of the podcast, um, you you were with us, Matt, what is it, uh, probably like the 105th or 6th episode? How many? 120th episode titled Parenting Lime, actually about Rachel. So it was a little teaser to this, a little preview to this podcast episode today, Rich. That's right. So if folks want to learn more about Dorothy's perspective uh, and how it's developed, they can listen to that podcast and listen to this. But Dorothy, you're uh, actually now the president of LymeDisease.org. I don't think you were back then, right? So why don't you, uh, I mean, again, you're one of the famous people in the community, but why don't you just sort of give a brief introduction to those who may not be aware of who you are? Well, I um, I got into this world, Lyme disease world, uh, in in 05, uh, when my daughter, Rachel, who was then age 13, uh, became suddenly disabled overnight. And, and, you know, like many other people in this community, we were given wrong answers before we finally found ourselves to right answers. And uh, that uh, I found that I was... One of many people, our family was met, one of many families that was really being uh, disserved, ill-served by the medical community when it comes to Lyme disease and related things. And when we finally, our family finally got through the worst of our process, I just, you know, felt felt a compulsion to try to help help change the situation. And so I've become involved with the organization LymeDisease.org. And I do, I have done a lot of different kinds of advocacy work through the years with that. And uh, uh, I guess about 
I guess it was about uh, eight years ago, I, I wrote a book called, I co-wrote a book uh, called When Your Child Has Lyme Disease, A Parent Survival Guide. And it it sort of took all, you know, it included some of my daughter's story and my family's story, but there was more than that. I was trying to make it more general. And so the current book, uh, let's say I'm drawing a blank. Finding resilience. <laughs> A teen's journey through Lyme disease is based on a journal that my daughter actually kept during this experience when she was starting when she was 13. And we'll, you know, let her talk more about that. And so we worked on this together. So much of it is her journal and there's commentary from me sort of filling in some of the blanks and the mother's point of view throughout throughout this. Well, so let's talk about that, Rachel. Let's talk about how the book was structured, because I really enjoyed the way you structured the book and how I was able to clearly see the difference between when you were speaking about your experience versus the way your mom was speaking about either your experience or her perspective in your experience. So why don't you talk to us about how you structured this book so that we'd have a clear distinction about who was talking at any particular moment? Um, yeah, so when we first or when I first started um, writing the book, originally, I had thought it was just going to be me, just my book, my story. Um, and so for the first six months, I worked on it. Um, and then I finally shared it with my mom. And she was saying, this is great, but it's it's missing some key points here because a 13 year old only knows so much of what's going on. Um, and so then she was saying, what if we work together and, you know, she can fill in um, some of those blanks, as we said. Um, and so then we tried that out. And then actually it was working with our, our publisher was the one who decided how it would actually look. And we were really happy with how it physically looked. It's really easy to tell when it's my mom talking, when it's me talking, um, just based on the visual changes um, in the story. So we really liked that. And we we fought to make sure that we could kind of go back and forth between me and my mom. Cause at one point with our publisher, we were talking about, they were saying, well, maybe just skip every other chapter, have it be your chapter and my mom's chapter. And we were like, no, like we have to be able to go back and forth as we want to tell a story, how it happened. So, so Dorothy, I mean, and this is unique. I, I don't think I've ever read a book that was structured this way. Um, you know, there, there certainly have been books which are told from different perspectives where we go chapter by chapter. But what we had here was um, was typeface would change. And then of course your comments or your perspective would be written in, in a in a uh, a shaded box, right? But but the but it did transition really well between one element of this of of, of the narrative versus another. So Dorothy, talk about how how that was uh, an important element of this and how it worked so well, or why you think it's worked so well. Well, it started um, actually, I'm really proud. My daughter is a very good writer. <laughs> and so, so she was writing uh, and she was, she was writing based on things because it was her journal. And also she made a lot of videos at the time and photographs. And so she had a lot of documentation uh, for things as she was going through and so we kind of, you know, we kind of worked together. Where would be a good point for me to say something? And, and like maybe she would, there was something where at one point she had hyperbaric oxygen treatment and she had her experience of what that felt like. But I could give a little bit of background and say, this is what it is. This is how it works. Or at one point she had... Um, 
uh, you know, IV antibiotics. And so I could explain a little bit of that process. And it wasn't, it wasn't just process. I was also talking about my feelings. And so, so it, we really went, you know, it was, it was really an interesting process for us to go back and forth and say, you know, what, you know, what, what, what are we trying to say here? <laughs> and a lot of, you know, her journal was what, was it? 500 pages. 500 pages to start with. So, I mean, part of writing anything is what do you leave out? <laughs> you know, you can't right, tell right. everything. So we tried to, to choose things that really represented, you know, re, you know, represent, re, represented something. And, uh, the one thing I have, I have, I have a little bit of regret about the way she originally wrote it. She would give lyrics of songs that she was listening to, and and I thought it really added a lot. And the publishers said that's really a headache because you have to go and get permission for each of those things, and sometimes you have to pay to use it and everything. And so the decision was made, you can give the title of a song. <laughs> so she'd say, oh, I was listening to Boulevard uh, of Broken Dreams by Green Day. Right, yeah. you know, or something. But I, I think that that having the, the um the lyrics, you know, really, really added something, but it was, it was a business decision to, to not go, to not go down that road. But it was, uh, it, it, it was an interesting process. And, and I think we, we learned a lot about each other in the, in the current, you know, incarnation by going, by going through that. That, I, okay, I think that's really cool too. And Matt is going to take great through some of the early parts of her journey, and I and I think I know Matt's journey included music as well. So I I think that's something you two will really be able to connect on. But let, let me say with a little more little more background, and uh, and then then I'll turn it over to Matt for his uh, early questions. So, but this is not just a story about the two of you and your relationship, right? There are other people who are prominently um, a part of the story. As a dad of daughters i really loved uh this you know the elements of your of your of your dad Rachel. so talk to us talk, first talk to us about bob and and how he was an important part of this story and i like it from each of your perspectives uh if you could let's talk, let's talk about because unfortunately in many cases you know on this podcast we find dads are not particularly as supportive as we need them to be uh, in many cases they're actually um they're actually not a positive force in dealing I'm going to jump in because Rich definitely got glitched out on us with his internet. So I think what Rich was asking there is, can you tell us how how he was a positive influence in your experience in, in, in contrast to so many negative influence fathers we've seen on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. So my dad was there every step of the way. My mom and I wrote this book, but my dad was also there while we were writing this book, looking at every, you know, every chapter as we wrote it on. But he was there through our entire experience. He was at every single medical appointment. Before I got sick, he was at every single soccer game. Um, and that just carried over. Um, so even though we wrote the book and um, and throughout the book, he I mean, he's mentioned throughout the book, but it's it's definitely focused on me and my mom. But my dad was there the whole time and he was so supportive. He also was financially supportive. So while my mom and I were at home, he was out there making money so that we could continue my medical treatment. Um, so, yeah, he was very, very much a supportive role and, and still is to this day. 
So, Dante, talk to us about how Bob was supportive of you and why do you think he seems to be unique in this community where dads aren't always as supportive as uh, maybe we would hope they would be in uh, in a child's Lyme disease journey? Well, that's a tough question um, because, you know, everybody's circumstances are different. And I certainly have heard of a lot of people where the dads were not supportive, but I also know plenty of cases where the dads were supportive. But the reality is I remember when I wrote the, the when I co-wrote the book, uh, When Your Child Has Lyme Disease, I co-wrote it with Sandy Barenbaum, who's a a therapist who, a Lyme literate therapist who specializes in families dealing with Lyme disease. And she said that in her practice, pretty much she was talking to the moms. <laughs> that was, that was, that was just a reality. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, sometimes it would be then. And, and when, uh, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of times, like Rachel says, she remembers her dad being at, at every medical appointment. He wasn't at every medical appointment because he, he wasn't because he was at work lots of times. I mean, he came to lots of them. He came to so many of the important ones. He came to the you know, he came to the big ones, but there were plenty of them where where was not. I have and, no memory of that. In my <laughs> memory, he's everywhere. And and I mean, he was he's definitely very strong, warm part of our family. But I'm just I'm just saying the reality was is division of labor. Yeah. I was schlepping you to the appointments. He largely didn't come down, you know, when we were going to the chiropractor all those times. Oh, yeah. Not those ones. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it was it was. You know, just 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 the reality was is is he was she said he was he was working so we could afford the treatments, but but uh, it's so so you know we 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 lucked out and it was it you know it was stressful it was stressful you know it was stressful on the whole family it was it, it is stressful on the whole family Dorothy and I appreciate the politically correct answer that you gave but you're on the tick boot camp and we're not going to let you get away with that because the truth is and I'm saying this as a dad. Dads, unfortunately, are not supportive enough in this community, right? And Matt and I have had the experience. We've had thousands of people reach out to us. And at the earlier stages of our of our uh, our effort here, we would we would we would do a Zoom with anyone who would ask us to do a Zoom. We don't have the time to do that anymore. But I can tell you, ninety nine percent of the people that were reaching out to us were moms. Very rarely did we have ever dad reach out to us, and very rarely did we ever dad participate, even when the mom reached out to us to talk to us, uh, because dads, unfortunately, I. For whatever reason, and I think some of it may be divide and conquer, which is very polite, but I think part of it is, for whatever reason is, many dads don't have the tools they need in order to be able to deal with the kind of stresses that Lyme disease imposes on a family. And it seems to me that Bob was unique in that regard. So uh, as polite as your answer was, I do think to help other dads, we really have to talk about what was unique about Bob so they can have a model that maybe they could follow to do a better job and have their children have the kind of memory that Rachel has, which is not that Bob was absent, but she remembers him always being there, even though he couldn't be there because you had this divide and conquer, right? That's not what we see with most of the young people that we're interviewing. So let's talk about Bob a little bit more. And why is he so unique, Rachel? Why, Actually, why, was, your dad, why was your dad different? And how could he be the model for other dads whose children are on this journey? 
So my dad, um, his job as a, was a finance director at the time. So he was big into numbers and big into data. And so I remember um, at my absolute sickest, you know, with Lyme, you get symptoms all over the place. They don't make sense. You have one for three days. You have another that comes and lasts for 10 years. So my dad made a chart. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And it was like, on this day, this symptom started and it went for this long and then this symptom. And so that in a big way was how he helped. He worked, you know, we had a medical binder and he would be making charts and and following symptoms and trying to make sense of something that just couldn't really make sense. So that was something actually that was yeah. that was so, unique and helpful. We brought those to appointments. Yeah. So Dorothy, tell me, tell me more about how Bob was supporting you, Dorothy, right? There was no conflict between you. In so many cases, we hear dads are actually giving moms a hard time about coddling their children or enabling their children or you know, believing what maybe shouldn't be believed. I mean, we've heard that time and time again, Dorothy. So again, I'm going to challenge you. I love you, but I have to challenge you. Um, <laughs> you know, tell me why Bob was unique in your element of the story. And you did tell this in the book, right? I mean, you talked about how you had, you know, sort of date lunches when Rachel was, you know, either taking a course, you know, taking a sign language course or, you know, so fill me in on this and how Bob was always supporting you, Dorothy, and allowing you to be the mom you wanted to be to help your daughter get through this. Yeah, well, it was, um, yeah, we 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 should have had we should have had him on the podcast <laughs> with us. <laughs> there's no room in this closet. It's yeah. very small. You can't see it. But here's the wall, and here's the wall. There's no more room. <laughs> but um, you know, it was uh, you know there 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 were moments. You know, there it, it was not. You know, you, you 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 write a book and you say certain kinds of things. I mean, there were moments when. We all had doubts, you know, the whole family had doubts. And when the medical establishment is telling you that you're wrong, you know, that you're a bad mother <laughs> and uh, those kinds of things, it was just he was um, he was supportive. He listened to me and he was willing to, uh, you know, he was letting he was willing to let me do, you know, the main part of the work in terms of the research and that kind of thing, but he'd let me fill him in. And as Rachel said, he would, he would do his, his uh, charts. He's, he's big on charts and graphs. And, uh, you know, it was, there were times when, when, um, you know, there were times when I felt like I couldn't even leave the house and he would, he would, you know, he would stay there so I could leave the house sometimes, even if it was just to walk around the block. And there were times when, uh, you know, there were there were some very dark times in in uh, you know with our family during through this, and uh, it was it was important that I you know that I felt that that he was I could call him at work. There were times when I called him at work and said, "You have to come home right now," and and uh, and and he would. <laughs> And, and it was just, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I do know that this is, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the years that there's marriages that break up, uh, you know, over, over this kind of thing. Sometimes it's when one of the adults is the one that's sick, but often it's, you know, the ones that I tended to hear, particularly when I was writing the, the book about, you know, when your child has Lyme disease, that there were marriages that broke up because, the child was sick and the people didn't, you know, you know, one parent sided with the 
IDSA view of things, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. It was like a, a very, very, very difficult, very, very difficult for, for a lot of families. And I feel like we're um, lucky that we got through it. Now, um, Rachel's brother, my son, Jeremy, what it happened that Rachel got sick just as he was finishing up his last year of high school. And then he went away to college and, and it, it actually, I, I sometimes think I mentioned this in the book. I, you know, I felt a little bit of um, guilt over the fact that once he was at college, it was kind of like, okay, good. He's at college. I don't have to think about him and I could focus on this dumpster fire that was happening in our house. And, and there were times when I wasn't the parent to him that I would have wanted to be and and so it's but I know but I mean we still all have a good relationship and I'm aware of families where sometimes the kid that's not the one that's sick sort of divorces the family just you know goes off and says you know and and it's it's heartbreaking it's absolutely heartbreaking and so there's I don't want to make it sound like Oh, we just had it all together, you know. Oh no, we, <laughs> we were all perfect. Yeah, no, no, but 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 I, I do love the way that you wrote Jeremy, um, Rachel. <laughs> so let, let's talk about Jeremy uh, and and how important a role he played on this journey, um, because I, I I think he was a fantastic brother despite having all of these challenges. And and again, you know, every parent feels like they've neglected. When you have more than one child, you feel like you're neglecting someone at some time. That's just the nature yeah. of parenting. I have four daughters, so I've always I always feel like I'm neglecting someone. Uh, uh, but but Rachel, talk about how important this and you know again I'm I'm going to bring in the three men that we have to you know we have to introduce to our community before we go through your journey. But so man number two is Jeremy. So help us with that, Rachel. Um, yeah. So I mean, so my brother is four years older than me. So uh, our entire life, all we did was fight. And then I got sick and then that kind of shifted. And then all of a sudden I needed him to be able, like before we got our floors ripped up and made it into like, you know, laminate flooring so that I could move around our house easier on an office chair. Like my brother was like physically picking me up and bringing me to the bathroom and then picking me up and bringing me other places. Cause the wheelchair was really hard to navigate our house. And so our relationship started changing for the better once I got sick, but then very shortly after I got sick, he went off to college. Um, and so then I really only got to see him um, on holidays and breaks and stuff, but it was, it became really very special when he was home because it was not just, you know, our sort of the three of us at home dealing with all of our problems. We were able to have somebody else there with kind of a different energy in the house. Um, so that was huge. And also, I mean, my brother did something that I, I can never repay him for was that he taught me how to um, film and edit videos, which to this day is like my most sacred thing that I do that brings me joy. Um, so he taught me that when things were really, really bad. And then I kept filming and editing videos and documenting my experience up until now. <laughs> and, and and I love that. And I can't wait till we build that out a little bit more, but let's, let's hit the pause button on that piece of it now. Cause we, I just want to introduce everyone. There's a third man I want to introduce. So I want you to introduce Rachel and that, there's a, there's a man named Brian. So can you talk to us about who he is? <laughs> yes, Brian is my husband. <laughs> I met him um, 
uh, in college. And so uh, he and I have been together now uh, for just over a decade. So we have uh, we have uh, we have three important men that played a role in this uh, in the story, and we're going to build out their role in a little bit more detail. But we had we had a very supportive uh, dad and husband. Uh, we had a very understanding son and brother, and then we have we have this really important development where you went from being somebody who was really sick and didn't have any social life at all to as you began to heal, you also were able to heal socially, and you met a a, a boy in college and ultimately became a ma became married to Brian, and he played he plays an important role in this story as well. So we do have three important men, not just me and Matt. <laughs> who, are, who, are, who are important in this story, right? So, so Rachel, Matt's going to now take you through um, your background with Lyme disease so that folks can have, can have a foundation for the later elements of our conversation. Yeah, and before I do that, I, you know, something you guys said earlier that really stuck out with me was when you start to talk about your journey, right, from the patient side, Rachel, your side, and then the parent side, Dorothy, your side, that you both learn things from each other that you don't remember in the moment, right? So if you could if you could each give us an example of something you learned while writing this book about the journey that you either simply forgot or just didn't even know occurred. So Rachel, could you start with that? I'm just curious to, to get hear some things there. Yeah. Um, so I I learned a lot from like every time, like because when we were writing the book, and then it was like, oh, my mom was saying, like, okay, I'm gonna write a section, and you know, I'm gonna write a section about this. And it's like, okay. And then when she'd write it and I'd go back in our shared Word document and I'd see what she'd written. I learned so much like I was so sick and so unaware of anything that wasn't directly affecting me in the moment. And so like my grandma died and at, at like the absolute worst time in our family for my health, my mom's mom died and she had to go and deal with that. And, and she, like, every time I go back and I read the section where my grandma died and then my mom is having to go deal with that, but she's having to wait to go deal with that so that she can go to my doctor's appointment. And I mean, like, I cry every time I read that still, because at the time I was, and we talk about in the book, I was just mad at her. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, my mom's mom died. And I was mad at her for some totally unrelated reason because my life was falling apart. And so it's just so interesting to go back. And there were so many moments like that, like where I would just read her thing and just be like, whoa, I had absolutely no idea that she was like a human living a life as well when I was dealing with that. Yeah, so Dorothy, can you share any experiences that you've learned from Rachel when writing this book as well? Well, the thing that immediately comes to mind, I, I sort of don't even want to say because I the idea of being triggering, <laughs> triggering to people. But there is a section in the book that she is writing about that um, where she was actually trying to kill herself by putting air in her uh, pick line. And I was not aware of that at the time. I did not know that until, you know, two years ago or a year ago, whenever it was, we were, you know, I writing. called you up from a park and I said, I've written a new part of the book and I want to tell you about it before I send it to you because you're not going to know what I'm talking about. And, yeah. and it, it was really, um, you know, it was a real punch in the gut. And I, I remember the time, you know, the, the era, you know, I remember, I remember the, ultimately she was getting her pick line out. And I mean, I remember everything about that, but I did not know the other situation. 
And so it's, you know, that's that kind of thing. And so, you know, when somebody, it, it, you know, one thing is sort of the, the power of, of, of a journal, something that is written in the moment is very different than somebody, you just say, sit down and write something that happened to you a long time ago. You have your memory of it. I did not keep a journal during this time, you know, so she was the one that had the contemporaneous, um, you know, notes about this. And it was really, um, you know, as I say, it was a, it was a real uh, punch to the solar plexus. <laughs> And, uh, and I, you know, we, we, we got through it and we're in a better place. <laughs> and thank you for being so honest and sharing these things, but, and it's really important, right? Because although they can be triggering and although it can be sort of uh, depressing at times to hear these things, Lyme is a really difficult disease. And sometimes people need to know that they're not alone going through this journey. And we think boot camp are all about hope. And what better a story than Rachel's than a story of hope, right? So we're gonna get there. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast and you could hear Rachel, and, and you know, you can obviously you can't see her, but we can, she's extremely healthy and she's come full circle. So, you know, we're gonna get to that point. But we do want to focus on Rachel, how bad you were and how your illness began. So if you can start with us, just tell us about when you first got sick, what that was like and how your symptoms progressed. Yeah, so I first got sick when I was 13, um, and I had been a competitive year-round soccer player, and the first symptoms that I had were knee pain, and I'd actually had knee pain for years, so before I was 13, I'd had knee pain pretty much since fourth grade, but we it, it just kind of, it was enough that it was bothersome, but it was not enough to stop me from playing soccer, um, and then when I was 13, I fell in a soccer game, and I sprained my wrist and that just sort of set off this body-wide cascading of symptoms that we later learned was because the Lyme was waiting and just kind of waiting for its moment to take over. And when I injured my wrist, everything just kind of exploded. So within a couple of weeks, I was on crutches and because of knee pain. And then a couple of weeks later, I was in a wheelchair because like my knees, my ankles, everything just started hurting, just started having body-wide pain. So, uh, and it just kind of progressed from there. And at the time, were you thinking it was just simply related to the injury and not looking you know, for a bigger picture? At the time, we had no idea what was happening because it did not make any sense because I fell and I only injured my wrist. But my wrist, although it hurt, it was my knees were just like on fire. My ankles were like pins and needles and burning. Like it felt like my ankle was on fire sometimes. And it's just none of it made any sense. We told everyone it was a soccer injury because we didn't know how to how to put into words what was happening because I went from seemingly so healthy to all of a sudden in a wheelchair and we didn't, we didn't know how to express what was going on. And so as we were going to doctors trying to find out what was wrong, we just kind of called it a soccer injury, but it, it just kept progressing and, and it, we knew it wasn't a soccer injury. We just didn't know what it was. And Dorothy, what was that like from your standpoint as a mother, knowing that it really couldn't have been related to the injury because it was so, so much bigger than that? You know, what, what was going through your head and what doctors were you seeing to try to get to the bottom of this? Well, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was very difficult. And at first it's like you go and it's the wrist and then they say, oh, well, that's great. We're going to send you uh, to a wrist specialist and you have to wait two months for that appointment. And so there you are. And then well, then there's this problem with her foot and then there's a problem with something else. And it was just, 
it was like she was, I mean, we went, I went and rented the wheelchair just at a medical supply store because she needed to get from one place to another and she couldn't walk. And we, it, it got to a point when, when we finally got the MRI of the wrist, they said, oh, there's nothing wrong. The, the, the MRI didn't show there being anything wrong. And so suddenly, and it's like, we were being overdramatic here. This kid doesn't have anything wrong with her. We've got her in a wheelchair and we're, you know, going to and you know, trying to get appointments and whatever. It was very strange. It was a very, very strange situation. And I didn't know, you know, she mentioned that she had had knee pain prior to this happening. And sometimes she would complain about it. And then the next day she'd be out playing soccer. And so it wasn't that I thought that she was lying, but it just sort of seemed like, well, whatever the problem was seemed to have cleared up, you know? And so, so there was the, there was this weirdness. There was just this very weirdness. And, and one of the things that I later learned just from talking to and learning more about, you know, talking to other patients and, you know, going to medical conferences and stuff. One of the things about Lyme disease is that the symptoms wax and wane and they travel around your body. And one, one day, one elbow hurts and the next day it's the other elbow that hurts. And, you know, traditional doctors take that as, um, as evidence that, that you're faking it. If, oh yeah, well, yesterday you said the other one hurt. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it was, it was just, a, it was a very confusing time. And we were trying to keep her going to school. And so it happened that we just live um, just very close to the school. And I would push her over there in the wheelchair and, you know, I know it was, you know, it was kind of embarrassing and people to her and people's like, well, what are you, you know, if you had a skiing accident or something, you know, you had a legitimate thing that you, that everybody would recognize, but it was just this, you know, and she looked, she looked otherwise healthy. She looked like a healthy girl sitting in a wheelchair. And it was just, it was, it was very, the, the, um, I don't know, you know, the, the, I just, I, I felt at the school that they always felt like we were trying to pull something over on them <laughs> and that, you know, well, like I said, you know, but, but I didn't want her going to PE and well, she can only, you know, she had to go to PE. Well, you know, that, that'd be interesting. She'll just be sitting there in her wheelchair. Well, we had to have a doctor's uh, note to, to get her out of PE. We tried to get a doctor's note. And they said, there's no reason why she can't have PE. And I said, well, she's sitting there in a wheelchair. And they said, well, we didn't tell her go in a wheelchair. You're the ones that did that. <laughs> and it was just this very, it was just very weird. It was, it was just very weird. And, and um, once, as I said, once, once we got the MRI of the wrist and it didn't show anything wrong, it was like people's the the medical people's attitude towards us changed, and so we had to we had to keep pushing <laughs> and go 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 other directions. So you're being judged by doctors, by teachers, by your peers, fellow students, Rachel. Right now, you're 13 years old. That's a really important time in life. 
how is this impacting you as a, you know, this, this preteen at this point or this teen, I should say? Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> it was very uncomfortable at school because I really, and to this day, I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to have like a good label to say exactly what's going on. You know, it feels so good when you're like, I can put a word to what's happening. And so I didn't have that. And so it just felt very uncomfortable. And I just found that I started kind of shifting how I would react and like, Normally I'm, I'm very outgoing and I'll talk to anybody. And I just, you know, I love to be around people and do stuff, but at school, like when I'd be pushed in the hallway, I'd start to like have my eyes just be down. Just like, don't look at me because if you look at me, you're going to ask me a question that I don't know how to answer. And I don't, I can't give you an answer that's going to make you happy. Um, and so, so school became hard and there was, we talk in the book about uh, there's a girl that was like began bullying me just because I was in a wheelchair. And so a lot of kids just really didn't know how to react to what was going on. And I didn't know at the time how how to do anything. I didn't know what to say. Um, and so that was a problem at school. Uh, thankfully, I had a fantastic group of friends that were all in my neighborhood that I'm still very good friends with to this day. And so all of those friends um, did not they they were all completely supportive and you know did not do anything weird like the people at school they were all by my side throughout the entire experience so I was extremely lucky for that but at school it was very uncomfortable and yeah so Dorothy as the mom I know you're not going to let this go knowing you you you'd certainly would not let this go so what are you doing next you're being turned away by all these doctors basically saying you're you're the one that you, you're the reason she's in a real wheelchair she's fine you know have her walk and just stop it right now, obviously, she's not fine. So what do you do next? Are you looking for other doctors or are you starting to pivot to alternative medicine because you're not getting what you need and should be getting from mainstream doctors? Well, I wish we had pivoted sooner. Um, we were still thinking, you know, this is we just need to get to the right doctor, you know, the right this and that. She ended up being at a famous children's hospital, which shall not be named. And uh, they, um, we were taking her there because they had this famous pediatric pain program. But what we didn't realize, didn't appreciate until we were in the thick of it was is that they were viewing it all as uh, psychological. And it was uh, very, uh, it, it, that, there was a lot of trauma that was associated with that as well. And, uh, and so it wasn't until we left that and they, they basically, the, 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 these experts basically told me, you know, that it was, I, if I can uh, intersperse something here at some point, somebody had said to us, you know, you think it could possibly be Lyme disease. And I didn't know anything about Lyme disease. You know, we, we live in California. There's still not a real high uh, level of awareness about Lyme disease in California, even though there's plenty of Lyme disease here. But, but um, somebody said, could it be Lyme disease? Well, I'll ask the doctor. And uh, the doctor almost threw us out of the office when I asked that. I mean, it was very, it was very strange. And I was just like, you know, you could have said, you know, could this possibly be dengue fever? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I was just asking. And it was just like, uh, it, you know, just 
you know, just just asked a question, and I did not realize what a nerve <laughs> you touch with, you know, certain members of the medical community when you mention Lyme disease. And so I started looking for that, you know, on and online, and there were virtually no books on Amazon that were you know for for anything that would be helpful and I was there there just wasn't a lot even this was 2005 there's just been an explosion of information on the internet and so you know Facebook didn't exist and Instagram and Twitter you know none of that stuff existed but uh now there's there's a lot of information not all of it true <laughs> on 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 Lyme disease on the on the internet but there but there there really wasn't much of anything and and so I we we in, insisted on a on the guy that threw us out of the office didn't want to you know uh, order the Lyme test we got somebody else to to order the Lyme test and it came back negative and so it was like oh oh she doesn't have Lyme disease well we didn't know about all of the issues related to to Lyme testing and so when we were at this hospital that shall not be named uh they uh at one point i they had a um and they had one in a computer that families could use it was like a little little corner library and there was one little computer thing and when she was doing her various sessions and stuff i'd go in there and i'd i'd google things about pediatric pain and other kinds of stuff and i and i kept coming up with stuff you know some stuff about lyme disease some of it seemed to apply other didn't seem to apply and so i asked them about it and they said uh oh well <laughs> she didn't have lyme disease and because she had had this negative test and so i had learned enough then to know that there was something called a western blot but I hadn't learned enough to know that different labs get different results for for uh, for Western blots. And so I said, well, could we have a, a Western blot? And they were just like, no, no, there's no reason for her to have that and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, somehow I, I think they just wanted to shut me up. They ordered it and it came back that she didn't have it. And so, again, I didn't know the stuff about there's there's a lot of stuff about you know western blots that yep. you <laughs> they they come in different flavors absolutely <laughs> and so uh we i you know i sort of just disregarded that and i was looking for i was looking for other things and it wasn't until they dismissed us from the hospital and just said, you know, go, go back and, you know, go to your, your home and do your, you know, just, you know, we don't want anything more to do with you that, that I was really like, well, what do we do now? And that was the point when I thought, you know, we've got to start looking at somebody, you know, that looks at this, we have to, we, we have to start looking to, through different eyes. And so I went, there was somebody in our town that did um, acupuncture and other kinds of alternative things. And I went and talked to him myself. And then he said, well, bring her in. And he was, he was very nice. 
and then he he asked her some things and 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 then he he <laughs> he turned to me and he said i think she has lyme disease and and i thought i said well you know all of these people that the one thing that they were sure of is she didn't have lyme disease and he goes yeah i think I think she has lyme disease but he said he said you've got to find somebody that knows how to deal with that and he said i don't even have anybody to recommend to you and so that's when i went on to you know the internet and started scouring it and the patient groups and uh there used to be a a um, there was a group called California Lime that uh, is uh, was a, a Yahoo group. There used to be a whole whole bunch of Yahoo groups. Those have been phased out, and there's different groups now. But but California Lime somebody gave me a recommendation of of uh, of an eyelads doctor in California there were a few of them at the time there's more there are a few more now still not tons and uh and then that started us down down the road of of Lyme disease and and related it wasn't just Lyme as we all know Bartonella and other kinds of things yeah so Rachel tell us what that was like when you finally, you know, left this children's hospital, you weren't getting help. They were telling you it's all in your head and there's nothing really wrong with you. And now finally going to see a Lyme literate doctor. So curious from, from your standpoint as the patient and as a young child, what it was like going to see a Lyme literate doctor and what that treatment protocol looked like once you saw this doctor. So that was such a happy day. When I went to the Lyme doctor, it was a completely different experience. I wrote in great detail in my journal about it. Like it was a two hour appointment, which so many of these specialists you go to, you have a few minutes, they don't believe you. And it's just a bad experience. And so for this guy, we went, we had two hours, we could tell everything that happened. And I was just so aware of the fact that he was listening and like really taking in what we were saying and believing everything. When at that point, unfortunately, I was very used to people questioning everything we were saying. And so he was believing us. And then he was saying he wanted to do testing, but he really thought that I most likely had Lyme. And um, and so it was so wonderful to finally, after at this point, what had been like seven or eight months or something of like, you know, nothing. And then to finally feel that validation that like this whole time, I've been saying this and now somebody finally believes me and somebody that has the ability to do something about it. Um, and so he, uh, by this time I had just turned 14. And so he uh, put me on, I mean, we started a whole antibiotic um, regimen and I had to cut out all sugar. And so that was really a big thing. Um, I'm actually kind of stunned at my past self that I was willing to do that. I can't fathom doing that, but like I did for some reason. And so I cut I out, was too. <laughs> so I cut out all sugar and, um, and I was willing to do it. I've got to believe just because, you know, at that point it had gotten so bad that it's like, you're kind of willing to do anything. But, um, so I cut out sugar, we went on the antibiotics, um, and then promptly got sicker than I had like ever been to that point and everything just exploded. So Rachel, I want to take us off on a bit of a tangent um, and talk to you about doctors. So one of the ways you teach doctors in your book, which I think is unique, is uh, you, you actually teach there are three different types of doctors. You talk about the doctors who didn't believe you. You talk about the doctors who did believe you, but didn't believe in your future. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And then you talked about doctors who really believed you and believed you had a future. So talk to us about those three different types of doctors and how each of those experiences were different for, for you and how that was impacting the young uh, first child and then young woman who was going through the journey. Um, yeah. So the first whole bunch of doctors that we saw were the ones in the group of people that did not believe me. And unfortunately, those are the ones that, I mean, I was 13 years old and those are the ones that have completely molded and shaped me into how I view doctors to this day. So even though I'm 32 and I might have a fully broken wrist and it's obvious, I go into the doctor ready to fight because I believe that they are not going to look at my arm and think that it's broken. And so that that shaped me in a humongous way. Um, and so a lot of those doctors um, were the ones that we saw at the beginning. But then we got our Lyme doctor who was amazing and he he broke that mold. I didn't think there was a doctor that existed that could actually believe me at that point. And so then he um, he broke that mold and that was fantastic. Um, and I and we worked with you know, we worked with their office for many years. Um, and so that was huge. It didn't change my view on any other doctors, but it showed me that he he could be like that. Um, and then, yeah, we had other other practitioners along the way um, who who were also good and and I liked them. Um, but yeah, but that they kind of had this view um, that I would always always be sick, always need to be, you know, lowering my expectations um, for what I could do for myself. Um, and so that also impacted me um, it, in ways I didn't even realize at the time. Like I just was like, oh yeah. And I, I would pair it back that to other people. I'm always going to be sick. I'm always going to have to, you know, just kind of find ways to be happy and whatever. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I really, I really took that um, knowledge in and it wasn't until many, many years later that I found neural retraining, which I know we'll talk about later um, from dynamic neural retraining system that I realized that that belief was really limiting me um, and that I was just living my life um, as someone who believed that I could only get to a certain point. So um, I think it's important for us just at this point, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, um, about neurology and neural retraining and uh, neurological injuries, uh, because there isn't enough about that in my view in, the, in this community. But it is important for us to understand that you can have a well-intentioned doctor who is going to be placing limits on you. And that is going to have an impact on the belief system that you have about where you are ultimately going to be capable of going and whether or not you're going to be able to heal, right? So we have to be careful with doctors, right? And uh, another one of the things I, I think you taught very powerfully in your book is how these experiences that you had, and it seems like may, maybe you've overcome that since then, but at least the way you wrote it in the book was that it made you hesitate to describe to doctors what was going on with you. In fact, even going to doctors at all uh, when you had a unique, um, you had a unique symptom. So can you talk a little bit more about how important it is to be able to, even in the face of your belief that a doctor is not going to believe you, describe your symptoms to the doctor. So at least the doctor can give you whatever help a doctor can give you if you're either not going or you're not going and giving all the information that the doctor may need in order to help you to get better. So, okay. So say that again, what is the question there? <laughs> yeah, my, my question is, is the, the way you taught it in the book was that you were hesitant to talk about your strange symptoms to doctors, right? You said in, on some level, you were afraid to go at all. And then when you went, 
you weren't going to give the doctor the information about the symptom, the unique symptom, right? And of course, if the doctor doesn't have the information, the doctor can't help us. So, you know, the, the, this, this sort of culture of gaslighting is putting us in a position where we can't get help from the people who are supposed to be helping us. Yes. Yeah. So that's something that, again, I still I still struggle with now um, in terms of anytime something bizarre, you know, comes up um, trying to decide, is this worth going and potentially having to fight for? Um, but something that's been huge uh, for me is just having a medical team of practitioners of all different types um, and that I can go to with anything and and knowing that they'll believe me. That's huge. Like at this point, if I see a doctor, like I, I watched my mom advocate for me for all of my teens. And, and so then I got to see that. And so now I've, I've begun doing that for myself. So if I go to a doctor um, and it's not, you know, they're not believing me or whatever, then I now know that like, that's their problem, not my problem. And we're going to go somewhere else. Um, so that's been something that's big for me is to just be able to, uh, to know when to walk away and, and to just find somebody else. So doctor, let's talk about this from a parental standpoint, uh, because we are going to see all three types of these doctors when we're bringing our children for treatment for Lyme disease, right? So you've already talked about migrating symptoms and how that's a typical element of Lyme disease, which of course is also a typical element of doctors believing you're either malingering or you're, you're, you're engaging in inappropriate behavior um, as a parent. So talk about what your experiences were with doctors who didn't believe you and or Rachel, doctors who did believe that you were, you know, that you were, your child was sick, but that she could never get better versus doctors who believed that she was sick and, and helped her to understand that she could get better and could live the life that she's now, um, you know, manifesting. Well, some of that, I mean, interesting. These are thought-provoking questions, Rich. <laughs> you know, um, you know, in the beginning, it was we were just trying to get to anybody that believed us and thought they could help. And and then through the years, as as she got better from her initials, you know, she was in a wheelchair for about three years. And then once that phase was behind us, she was uh, she she lived at home and went to community college for two years, and then she transferred to a four year college. She was really um, she was really handling her own pretty much her own medical stuff, and uh, she she did learn to be an advocate. and And she she goes in with a, a written agenda when she goes to a doctor's appointment, and uh, hands a hands a copy to the doctor. Hands a, has a copy here. You know, these are the bullet points that I want to discuss with you. But uh, and so a lot of the things that she was um, saying about, you know, people that, you know, didn't didn't believe she would get better and stuff. I wasn't, you know, necessarily party to those those conversations. She would tell me she would tell me about it later. Um, so it's I think learning to navigate the medical system is is a huge thing for everybody, whether you got Lyme disease or not. <laughs> and um, and so those were, you know, those were those were important, those were important lessons. And just because um, you know, again, just just because a doc one one of the things I think and I hear this from from patients all the time, well, the doctor said such and such, I I think you need to have a healthy skepticism. 
And so when the doctor says such and such, you know, uh, just this morning, I was reading one of those articles in, I don't know, it's the New York Times or something where they have like medical mysteries and they go through and they say, and it was somebody didn't have anything to do with Lyme disease, but it was this fellow had gone to so many specialists through the years, you know, for whatever. The, and, and the problem ended up being something you know, completely different than than what, you know, the first 12 doctors, uh, you know, were looking at. And I just think that there's, um, that's the kind of thing that, that, that we all have to be, we have to educate ourselves <laughs> and, and we have to have a healthy skepticism. And so when the doctor, it's not that you disregard everything that the doctor says, but that you take it and you think about it and you, you know, you go Google some terms so we know what we're talking about. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it, it's, it's a huge thing, as I say, that's, that's not limited to Lyme disease. <laughs> well, it's not, it's, no, it's not limited to Lyme disease. It's, 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 it's endemic in the medical community. Uh, mm -hmm. But another one of the things that became, you know, you know, painfully obvious to me is that um, one of the challenges that we have as, as educated people is we're not given the basic skills we need to interface with doctors. And part of the reason I, I wanted to flesh this out with Rachel today is I've never read um, a book where somebody distinguished well-intentioned doctors who are believing you, but play, placing a ceiling on your, um, on your emotional um, uh, successes versus doctors who believe you and are not putting any ceilings on you. So, you know, we, we can have doctors that we love who are really good people who are believing us, but they could be hurting us emotionally, right? And, and, and we really have to make sure that we understand that we need medical professionals to help us with our physiological issues, at least, uh, and I'd like your response to this, Rachel, or your reaction to it, and medical professionals uh, who should be helping us with our emotional issues. And, um, and in some cases, the people who are trained to treat us medically are actually hurting us emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I never realized at the time, um, you know, those limiting beliefs that were being implanted. Like I didn't, I didn't realize it till, you know, eight or nine years later. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think that's a, it's a really an important, um, distinction. And it is, and it's an important, it's an important part of being, uh, being um, medically literate. Right? One of the things we talk about here at Tech Bootcamp is some of the skills you need to get through this journey. And medical literacy is, is one of those basic skills. And quite frankly, Rachel, we'll be stealing your three levels of, uh, of, of doctors and we'll be using that when we teach this because, um, because it is uh, important for us to understand um, even well-intentioned people can sometimes place limitations on us. And if we are not aware of how our brain works and we don't understand that beliefs are often going to be implanted in our brain because we don't know how to guard it, then we can put ourselves in a position where we become the fleas that we're going to talk about later. But I'll, I'll let Matt take you uh, take you through the next elements of your of your journey. Yeah. Rachel, let's get back to your 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 experience, your journey, you're transitioning now to this, this Lyme literate doctor and you're feeling really crappy from all the antibiotics and things that you're taking. So walk us through what happens next, right? Because we know this is very common, unfortunately, with people with chronic Lyme disease. You know, how do you respond to this feeling worse, you know, phenomenon with these antibiotics and then what goes on next there? 
Um, so at this point I had, uh, so much pain all over and I was not able to lay down flat or sit up straight because of back pain and breathing issues. So I could only breathe and be okay in a reclined position. So we had, uh, I was spending a hundred percent of my time in a hospital bed in my room that we had rented. Um, and so we rented the bed, we rented the bed, not the room. It was my room. And so then we owned that. But so then, um, so, yeah, so I was just getting worse and worse at this point, unable to go to school because, um, again, I was just, you know, stuck in that reclined position um, in my room. Um, and so then at this point, not only was I deteriorating physically in ways that we just didn't even know were possible. You think you've hit rock bottom and then there's still more to go. And so but also not just physically, but mentally at, at my absolute worst and extremely depressed um, and just downward spiraling. So, Dorothy, at this point, you know, are you going to are you reacting and changing doctors? What do you do as the mom now seeing your daughter get even worse now that you have, you know, you know what it is, the Lyme disease and your daughter's getting worse? How do you respond? Do you do you stick the stay the course or do you pivot to another doctor? Well, we we, we stayed the course. It was um, it was at this time that my mom died. <laughs> And it was so there was a a, a lot going on, um, sort of emotionally, and uh, and she was, you know, we were just trying to, you know, we we still believed that the Lyme doctor was the one, you know, we were kind of staking our <laughs> staking our future on him, and um, and it was we were just trying to. You know, we were just trying to, to get through each day. And I don't know if you want us to go into what happened next. Yes, please. Okay. You want to say it? You want me to say it? Um, oh, I can say it. But so um, it was just my depression got so bad um, that it just got to a point where I just felt like there was no way out. Um, and so then after a supremely awful day that you can read about in the book, I uh, ended up in a, a an adolescent teenage um, psychiatric facility uh, where I was on a 72-hour hold, uh, though I did not know that because no one specified that. So I didn't know how long I was going to be there, but it was a 72-hour hold that I was there for. So first of all, thank you for sharing that because Rich and I can't tell you how many people have told us they've been in the same position but don't want to share publicly on this podcast or with others. And I think it's so important that we realize the psychological impact this disease has. We're not saying that anybody with chronic Lyme is crazy, but the Lyme bacteria itself does impact your mental health. And we have to recognize that as Lyme patients because it's part of understanding what we're going to go through and what we need to, to deal with in order to get better. And yes, we can get better like you did, Rachel. So I just want to kind of jump with that little PSA there. Uh, so walk us through, if you can, just a little bit of what that was like, and then what comes next in your healing journey after this, this 72 hour hold? Yeah. So when I was there, I mean, it was, it was beyond upsetting. I was in, you know, totally different environment. Felt like I was being like, you know, put in jail for something that I had done at the time. I was very upset at my parents, um, because they had been the ones to call 911. So it was, I felt like I had absolutely nobody and I was put in this thing that felt like a prison. Um, and I was still in, in horrific pain all the time, but now I didn't even have my support system there. I was just surrounded by a bunch of other people with their own problems. Um, and so 
after the 72 hour hold, I came back home and, um, and then was much worse off after that for that, um, over the next few months, um, we got on some antidepressants, which I was actually on for quite some time. Um, and that was very important, um, for my continued well-being. Um, and then we ended up just sort of at such a low point. And then my mom learned about hyperbaric oxygen chamber therapy. And at this point I was having so many neurological issues too, with memory and being able to concentrate. Um, and that was really impacting. I mean, I was not in school. I wasn't doing anything other than sitting just in my bedroom, watching TV all day. Um, and so, uh, so then that started sort of the next leg of our journey by going to um, a couple hours away to a hyperbaric oxygen um, chamber center. If, if if I can go in and talk about the 72 hour hold, part of that, part of what was going on there was when, you know, she was there and, and I took all of her, we followed her, she was transported by ambulance, but oh, my husband and I followed in the car and I had her bag of medications <laughs> and I was telling them, you know, trying to give her the them the history of this and they didn't particularly want to hear it and they didn't want uh, they didn't want her to be I was insisting she had to take this medication you know had to continue with this antibiotics and they said well you because it was, was like midnight by the time she was there so that I should talk to the medical director the next day and so um you know I put in a call to him um you know first thing and uh, and he was telling me he was really um, resistant to the idea of her taking these antibiotics. And he said that he he used to live in Connecticut. And so he knew all about Lyme disease. And so this wasn't Lyme disease. So, I mean, at that point, he hadn't examined her. He knew nothing about her medical history. And yet he, but I um, used all my powers of persuasion and he, and I, I offered to set up uh, a phone consult with the Lyme doctor, but he, he didn't want to do that. You know, <laughs> no need to do that. And, and, uh, but I finally talked him into continuing the antibiotics and, you know, we were, there were also a bunch of supplements and stuff. I said, okay, we'll, we'll set the supplements aside. How about we continue the antibiotics? And somehow he agreed, you know, he agreed to do that. And so, but uh, there were other times uh, when, like when we went to visiting hours at the, at the place and before we got there early and and there was a psych tech that took us in a in a separate room, my husband and I, just to talk to us. And he just said, you know, your daughter's scamming you. There's nothing wrong with her. You guys have just caught it. And and it's like, okay, at that time it was that she'd been there 24 hours. And, you know, it was it was just like you know, you know, all this, <laughs> you know, all of this. And it was just at that point, we just wanted her out. But we also knew how horrendous it was before. And we really didn't, didn't know what to do. And it was at that time uh, that I first got our, our Lyme doctor had had previously suggested that I talk to Sandy Berenbaum 
who was this Lyme literate um, family therapist on the East Coast. And and so this was, you know, now there's a lot of people doing uh, remote counseling and that kind of stuff, but that wasn't a thing really then. And uh, but and I thought, you know, when he first told me, oh, this is somebody this was before it happened. You know, he gave me her name and stuff. He ought to talk to her. I remember thinking, what is somebody on the East Coast going to do for me? And um, well, what she did was she helped save our lives. And and um, so I talked to her while, you know, and I, and I, I left her a message. She called me right back. And in my message, I said, you know, said who I was and who our doctor was and that my daughter was on a 72 hour psych hold and I don't know what to do next. <laughs> and she called me and we we started working together. And I remember one of the things she said is, you need a plan. <laughs> and so we started devising a plan. And one of the things that she said, because I was thinking, well, we just need to find the right facility for her to, you know, that we could have her admitted to a facility and that they'll take care of the Lyme and they'll take care of the other stuff. And she said, no such facility, basically, at that time. And and uh, she said, you you have to your house has to become the hospital and you have to find what you need and do what you need to do. And uh, and so that's that started us that started us on the journey. And um, the uh, the Lyme doctor was the one that suggested the hyperbaric oxygen. And we did that. And I think. I think it helped in uh, psychologically. I think her her mind worked better after doing that. She had really had a lot of episodes of of um, just you know not being able to remember things, very you know not clear thinking, that kind of stuff. But it didn't. The high, her her experience with the hyperbaric is it didn't do anything for the physical pain, and in her mind. And herself, her 14 at that point, her 14-year-old self, the pain was what was the problem. And, and the thing is, it was a huge problem, but there were also all these other things. And she didn't have an appreciation for the fact that she couldn't remember stuff. You could tell her something, and five minutes later, she wouldn't know that you had said it. And so... Um, so we did the hyperbaric and then we came back and then there were uh, at some point we so also with our doctor's recommendation, we started working uh, with a nature path and uh, a lot of things with detoxification. So we started working with different, you know, different practitioners, but really under the, the purview of the Lyme doctor. And, uh, and, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a long, you know, it was a long, it was a long process. So. Yeah, Rachel, can you tell us some of the key things, well, that came after this? So the hyperbaric oxygen therapy sounds like helped with your memory, but not so much the physical side of things. So what, what things came next and which ones were most impactful, do you believe in your healing journey? So it's so, it's so hard because people, you know, contact me now and they're like, well, what did you do to get better? And it's like, I don't even know because I did everything. And so it's like, it's very hard to tell what helped. But for me, I mean, we were, I was taking so many pills, so many supplements, 
and it was hard to tell. It's like when I went off of them, I'd have less energy, but it was like what, it was hard to tell what was really working. But when I started uh, seeing a specialized chiropractor for the very top vertebra of the neck, um, that changed everything. And that was the end of the end of our book was what, when I started seeing him, because it was him and his treatment that ended up basically turning off all of my pain after 14 treatments with him, um, which then led me to being able to walk. Um, and so that was a huge thing. And today I still see an upper cervical chiropractor. Um, and I find that like when I'm in alignment, I, everything goes better. And when I'm out of alignment, all of these other things start to fall apart. Um, so that was like, if I had to pick one thing that we did, that was it. But that was also years after having done all of these antibiotics going after the bugs, all of these supplements. And so, I mean, we had all of these things that I'm sure also did their part. So let's dive into a little bit deeper because, you know, Rich knows I'm a huge advocate of the, of the chiropractor and I just feel better when I'm in alignment to your point, right? Like the pain that I just feel like I move better. I have more energy. I sleep better. And I even think sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit sharper, right? When I, I notice at work from the chiropractor, I'm just more on my game when it comes to my ability to do my job. So what was this the first chiropractor you saw, before, you know, that, that you had relief from? Was, was it the specialization or was it just you think the chiropractic care in general? Um, I think it was the first chiropractor I ever really saw. Um, but I, he had actually seen another friend of mine with Lyme who was very similar to my case with in a wheelchair, lots of pain. So she had recommended him to us. Um, and so she had also seen a great benefit from working with him. So I, I do think it has something to do with the type of chiropractic. Like it wasn't just any random chiropractor. He was doing something very specific to the top um, the very top of the neck there. Um, and so, and as I've now years, you know, after finishing up with him and living in different places, I've tried a bunch of different chiropractors and I'm to the point, I won't see any chiropractor. No one's touching my neck except for a NUCA chiropractor, N-U-C-C-A. It's like this upper cervical chiropractor. Um, because that's like, that is what works for me. That is the best. Um, that's just, that's what works for me and my body. Um, so I do think it was also something specific um, to the type of chiropractic he was doing. So in addition to the the physiological, the physical, right, where the the physical care you were getting with the chiropractor really helped you walk again, that was huge. There's also there's also the neuropsychological piece too, right? And, and especially when it you mentioned the DNRS, I really want to make sure we have time to talk about the neural sculpting of of impact of Lyme disease. So I know for myself, and it sounds like for you our brain pathways almost get wired in a bad way after being sick for so long. And our thought patterns, our, you know, uh, the way we respond to things, both, you know, what we're aware of and what we're not aware of how we respond to them from a neural standpoint have to be modified once we start to feel better again. So what did it look like for you? Tell us, you know, I guess at a high level, what brought DNRS into the picture for, for you, both of you, and then what it was like when you first started going, going through DNRS and how that was pivotal in your healing as well. Yeah. So leading up to DNRS. So after I got, after I began walking, um, you know, I thought all of my problems were going to be solved. Once I can walk, everything will be fine. And 
that was not what happened. I was still, still very much dealing with Lyme, still dealing with so much fatigue and weakness. And I just, I could walk from point A to point D, point A to point B, but then I had to sit down. Um, and that just continued year after year. I, I went off to college. I was just still really struggling physically with like, I, I, I wanted to go out and do all of the things, but I just could not physically do them. And we couldn't figure out why, but then I went to college in Oregon and got, worse and worse and worse. And then we realized it was actually that I was being exposed to toxic mold in one of the buildings that I spent a lot of time in. So I ended up having to drop out of grad school and deal solely with mold. Um, And so then while dealing with mold, I developed a lot of food allergies and sensitivities and then chemical sensitivities. And so that all kind of happened while we were going after the mold. Um, And so it started kind of low and then just kept getting worse and worse. And then at this point, uh, my husband and I had moved to Arizona and we were living there thinking that would be better for the mold. And I was trying to just get my life on track, but the, the chemical sensitivities and the food sensitivities were just getting worse and worse. And we were trying all these different antihistamine medications, my mold doctor and my Lyme doctor, everybody, we were all trying to figure out how to get this um, this chemical and food issue under control. Um, and I worked at a school. And so there's so many chemicals, cleaning chemicals in a school. And it just got so bad that I would just have like a rash all over my body. My hands would be red and burning and cracked. And it was just it was becoming so bad that I was not going to be able to continue doing what we were doing and working there. And so I started hearing about DNRS, like I have an Instagram, Resiliently Rachel, where I post about stuff. And I started posting, just saying, this is ridiculous. Like my life is being so impacted by this, but it didn't used to be impacted by this. And people would reach out and say, oh, there's this thing called dynamic neural retraining system. And, you know, you can retrain your brain and, and you can get better from that. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And like, I wouldn't even look into it. I was not going to have anyone as a history of someone who is used to people telling me that it's all in my head and that like, you know, if I wanted to make it better, I would just make it better. I was like, I'm not doing any of that. So I didn't even look into it. And then um, my mom ended up being at some Lyme conference and she met my mold doctor there and they were talking and she just kind of said, oh, Rachel's, you know, having this issue. And he had said, you know, have her look into DNRS. And then, um, and so then that was something else. And I was like, gosh, people keep telling me this. And then do you guys know Scott Forsgren, Better Health Guy? Um, okay. He's, he's in the community. Um, does a lot of, um, a lot of health stuff. And so anyways, I know him. And so then he, um, he reached out and was like, you should really look into DNRS. So at this point, so many people had been telling me about this, that I finally Googled it and then looked into it. And instantly, I mean, that day I bought the DVDs because just reading the stories of people who had food and chemical sensitivities, who went through this program and then could eat food and be around chemicals and not, you know, have a rash all over their body and not be really sick from the food. So I immediately ordered the DVDs and, and I just put everything I had into that program. And back then it was 2018. So it was pre-COVID. So they actually had in-person seminars. So after a month of doing the DVDs, I was able to go to Canada and do a one week program um, for DNRS there. And I mean, it was absolutely life-changing. I was able over the next few months to get all of my food back. I can eat anything I want now. I can be around chemicals. People spray, you know, perfume or cologne. I work at a school, the older people wear cologne and I can walk by and be like, that doesn't smell good. And that's it. Like it doesn't affect me. And it's just, uh, I can, I, I, I'm, it's, 
I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't gone through it myself. Like it was life-changing. That is so cool. And I can't wait to come back and build out a little bit more, but I want to go back to a little, uh, uh, an earlier part of your story, which I want to talk about the mold piece of it before we get there. Right. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in this. Let's look at, let's look at physical issues and emotional issues separately. Right. Your, your mom did talk about how we have these migrating symptoms and we haven't really built out the emotional piece yet. And clearly Matt knows we want to get to the DNRS piece, but let's, let's say with the mold piece, I think that's an important part of this journey. Um, how did the how did the mold first surface and how did you begin treating that? Yeah, so I was so again, I was at college and I'm trying to just live my life and I was just getting weaker and weaker. And like it would be the type of thing where you go up a flight of stairs and then I would have to stand and hold on to the railing at the top. And it was like I felt like all of the blood had just rushed out of me. And it was like I if I tried to take a step, I would fall. So I had to sometimes stand there for like 30 seconds and then wait for the blood to magically start pumping again. And then I could kind of keep going. And so it just was weird symptoms, a lot of heart palpitations. So, you know, we went to a cardiologist, you go to all the different doctors, they say, you're healthy as, as can be, you know, why are you in my office? And, um, and it's like, I was hoping you could tell me that. And so we, um, we just went to all the different people and we couldn't figure it out. We kept thinking, oh, it must be the Lyme. So we tried to like change up the Lyme treatment and it just wasn't working. And then finally, you know, my mom at this point had really kind of been doing a lot of her advocacy and she knew a lot of people in the Lyme world, uh, which kind of also encompasses the mold community as well. Um, and so she just started reaching out to people and just kind of explaining. I think we even had a write-up. She's like, this is what I, my daughter wrote. I, I had Rachel. I, I said, write down just just all your symptoms and email it to me. And um, I sent it to somebody that I know. And 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 she sent it to somebody else, to, to a, a, a prominent Lyme doctor on the East Coast, not our doctor. And just somebody she knows personally. And she said, what, she didn't even say who it was, just what do you think this person is? And they said, mold. <laughs> and so, oh, okay. And I had been, you know, starting to hear about that from people, but I hadn't put it together for us. And so, uh, so we found a mold doctor. Who and, was also a Lyme doctor, which was, was fantastic. Also, and yeah. he knew my previous Lyme doctor. So we were able to kind of do the Lyme and the mold treatment together, which actually was the key to me being able to get off antibiotics. I was on antibiotics for 10 years straight, which wreaked havoc with a whole bunch of stuff, but I could not get off of it. And then like, anytime we got off instantly, I would get so sick that I just, I'm mean, like, like just so physical, all the symptoms would come back. Um, and so it wasn't until treating the mold and the Lyme together that then I was able to get off antibiotics and have not been on them since. So, so. We, we've had many we've had many doctors on this podcast tell us that in many cases, um, once they treat the mold, they don't have to treat the Lyme any further because the immunosuppressive nature of of the mold um, disease will. And once that is once that is resolved, you can your immune system will then function again. So I, I, that was a really yeah. important part of this. That I, I didn't want to jump over from the standpoint of folks in our community wanting to see what steps you've taken. Again, maybe they'll take different steps. Maybe they won't. But we we, we do need to build out this this, uh, this mold uh, piece of it. Yeah. Um, 
And that's what happened for us that like, I mean, well, I say us, it's, it's an us, it's an our family. It is an us. I always use like the Royal we, and people are like, who's we? And I'm like, it's me, but my mom's there and my dad and you know, it's all of us. So yeah, that's what happened to us, me when I, um, I, we, yeah, started treating mold and then got off the antibiotics and then I was off Lyme treatment. I mean, like for years, I, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I didn't think that that would be able to happen. Just Rachel, talk a little bit more about your detoxing from mold. I was just trying to find that section in the book uh, on page 263 of the book. You actually talk about what the process was from detoxing from mold, right? And so I, I want folks to hear that full story because it was a lot of work. I mean, each one of these processes you've gone through, there wasn't a magic pill that was given to Rachel. And then she went on to the next pill and then she went on to the next pill. There was a lot of Rachel involved in all of this. So I, I want to I want you to build out this this mold piece, not just what was done for you, but what you ultimately had to do, because it was really powerful for me to say, holy cow, this kid had to, you know, stay away from the theaters, couldn't go to the store. I mean, it was a really, you know, rigorous process. So give us that, give us the detail on that. Yeah. So, I mean, boy, I could, we could read, I'm not going to, but we could write a whole book about the mold thing because that's a very small portion. This memoir, we just focused specifically on my teen years. Right. It, it was just, a turn. Yeah. yeah um, but like that mold uh, experience was so intense. And I mean, I had preparation because of the Lyme treatment, but the mold treatment, it was, I was working with a doctor who um, was following sort of following the shoemaker protocol, which is a mold protocol. Um, and so not following hundred percent, but mostly following it. And, um, and it is so rigorous and it's like, you do all these tests and then based on the tests, you can start certain medicine and you do this medicine. You start with one drop the next day, two drops, four days later, four drops, three times a day. And then it's like, you have to have all those charts that my dad did. We had to bring them back for when I can take all of my meds. And I mean, this med can't be next to this med, but this one has to be right before this one. I mean, it was a full-time job and it's like, you'll do something for a week and then you'll test and then you'll, and then you'll do this for a week and then you'll stop it and then you'll do a different medicine. And so again, I, I had to drop out of grad school and this became my full-time job. And my doctor was adamant that while we were detoxing from mold, I couldn't be in any mold. And I lived in the Pacific Northwest at the time. So there was, we couldn't be sure that anywhere I went, like we couldn't be sure if there was mold or not there. Um, and so we tested my apartment and there was no mold. So for it ended up being 13 months where I didn't go anywhere except for the doctor when I would wear like a charcoal face mask when I was there and I would only go to the doctor or to get my blood drawn. Otherwise, I just stayed home. And um, my my boyfriend, who's my husband now, he did all the shopping. We did online shopping. And um, yeah, so I was just fully trapped at home in my apartment just trying to do. I was like trying to follow it to the teeth. Like I was the model patient. I was like, we're going to do this. Cause I'd seen a glimpse of what my life could be like. And then it was taken away. And so we just, um, yeah, it was a really long process. Uh, but I mean, eventually it got to the point where I was a good amount better. Um, uh, but it wasn't until the DNRS that we kind of officially got it. Well, that's, but you are making these gains, right? So because one of the things that you had said when Matt was asking, you was like, what you, which of these protocols was the protocol? And 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 Rachel, frankly, in every one of the interviews we've done, and again, there's 400 folks just like you we've interviewed, and 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 hundreds more who we haven't published as as podcast episodes. Um, it's never 
one thing. And it's always a mistake to believe it is going to be one thing. It's a series of things that are going to layer on top of one another, and you're going to unpeel this onion and get better and better and better, right? So um, it was kind of you to answer Matt's question about the one thing, but it wasn't one thing, right? There is no one thing. And now we, you know, we do have to unfold this mold piece. And I love the metaphor that you had used. Um, I think one of the doctors shared with you is that if you do not deal with the mold, you're never going to be able to get better. It's like using a towel in the shower, a wet towel in the shower to try to dry yourself off when more and more water is coming on, right? And that's what was happening with you. And that's why you were on the antibiotics for 10 years because the mold issues were immunosuppressive. And as a result of that, the only way that the microbes could be managed was with the antibiotics. And once you dealt with the mold issue, then your immune system was healthy enough to take the next step in the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And we, it was interesting because we really hadn't been aware of that until this next step of our journey. When we became aware of the mold, we didn't realize just how much of an impact, like when we started treating the mold, I just thought we were treating the mold because of, you know, everything from my college. I had no idea that it would then have such an impact on the Lyme as well. All right. So now you have this immune system that has been suppressed for a long time. Um, actually, before we leave the mold piece, I, I, I want to get to the NCAS piece in a minute, but let, let me stay with the mold piece one more. Dorothy, give us, give us some input on, uh, on your perspective on the mold piece and how vital that was to your daughter's healing. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, community and the information you were getting from different community groups. Well, uh, in, you know, in terms of, of, I had heard of mold as being something, you know, I kind of go in and out of different online support groups and stuff, you know, to be in touch with the community. And there would be people that were saying, oh yeah, mold was a problem, mold was a problem. Well, looking around my house, it didn't seem like it was a problem. <laughs> and one of the um, one of the nature paths that we had been seeing had suggested to us that, that um, you know, this is when Rachel was still living at home, that, that we should investigate mold. And at that time, it was very hard to get much information about this kind of thing. And we had somebody come and, <clears throat> and frankly, we spent a lot of money, <clears throat> excuse me, to have somebody come and analyze the house. And they said, oh, it's fine, there's no mold here. And uh, then that was when she was still living at home. And so then, then it was like, she said, we just thought, oh, well, it's because it rains so much up in Portland. That's why, you know, there's mold up there. And, but later we actually found after when she was going to the mold doctor and everything that Ed, he had us do an ERMI test at home and we fucked and he said he did not want Rachel setting a foot in our house until we could pass a mold test. And so I was like, okay, you tell me who to come do the inspection. <laughs> and he had some, he had some recommendations. And so somebody came and uh and they found mold under the under the kitchen sink. They had to pull up the flooring under the kitchen sink and I'd forgotten about it years before our dishwasher had had a leak and had, you know, somebody had come and fixed it and whatever. And it had gotten, you know, moisture had gotten under there and there was a whole lot of mold there. And when you really get the, um, you know, remediation come and they do it right, they come and actually like, you know, sealed the kitchen. There was actually like a zipper 
to, to go in and out. And the guy had a hazmat suit on and, and cleaned that. And there was one of the bathrooms, uh, one of the, under the bathroom sink, there was also mold. And so that got replaced. So I'd been exposed to mold before college. It was just the black mold that we tested at college that brought our attention to it. Yeah. And, 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 and it wasn't affecting the rest of your family, Rachel, I would guess, because they were healthy and they were moving and they were detoxing. Yeah. And it wasn't something that was ultimately building up. But for you, because you were sick, because you were immobile, because you couldn't detox, what starts to happen is the mycotoxins begin to increase, build up in your body. And now you now find yourself in another moldy place and it's just sort of like dog, I'm using Matt's word, dog piling on top of one another. I mean, all these things are piling. So was the mold affecting your mom? No, was it affecting your dad? No, was it affecting your brother? No, it wasn't affecting anyone. They were healthy, they were moving. It wasn't doing it, right? You, you get to the point where you now have chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Why? Because you can't detox. Yep, yeah. And, and um, yeah, I I just realized now that that mold is a huge problem for an awful lot of people <laughs> and and it's you know that that it can actually you know it can cause symptoms very much like Lyme disease even if the person doesn't have Lyme disease and so it's just that was yeah and 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 again there's more resources out there now with informational resources and and there was there just there just wasn't there just wasn't much there and uh and so that was you know that was that was a big that was a big problem <laughs> well Dorothy here's another place where I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you uh, as the president of Lymedisease.org, right because you know one of the things you just said is that the that the that the mold disease and Lyme disease can have very similar symptoms right and the question really is what is Lyme disease right um, because we here at Tick Bootcamp, and we've had a lot of challenges on, on this issue, is we, we call Lyme disease a disease without a definition, right? Certainly a disease without a consistent definition. Everyone we talk to seems to have a different disease. Philip says it's Lyme plus. You know, um, you know, uh, um, we have, we have, um, you know, we have, we have Horace's definition. We have the CDC. You know, we have all these definitions all over. Everybody's got their own definitions, right? So we said, all right, well, since everybody has their own definition, we can come up with ours, right? So our definition for Lyme disease is it's a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think if it is in fact what we argue it is, you're going to see these sort of similar presentations when you're immunosuppressed, right? Because if the Lyme bacteria, for example, um, is suppressing Rachel's um, immune system, well, other bugs are going to take off and they're going to present in a particular, you know, in a way. Or if it's the mold that's suppressing your immune system, then bugs are going to be taking off, right? So you're going to see a similar presentation. It doesn't matter what's suppressing your immune system, in my view. It 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 it, it is going to present the same way if you're if you have immunosuppressive multimicrobial suppression. Uh, give me a reaction to that, Rachel, first, and then uh, then I want the president to give us her 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 <laughs> response to the Tiffany camp. Uh, definition of Lyme disease. I, uh, no, I, I think that's great. And I, I think it's also true. Everybody has a different definition because it's not just some easy, quick, oh, this is exactly what it is. I, I could not say it better than, than what you have said. All right, Madam President, so it's your turn to tell, take okay. me on. Okay. I, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I would expand on it and say that with the advent of COVID, uh, we get, you know, something else that uh, affects 
the immune system and, you know, has an awful lot of overlapping, overlapping symptoms. Uh, you, you might be aware that there's recently come together a coalition of the, that my organization is part of and uh, others where the, it has kind of a kind of an awkward name. I call it IACPAC. It's I-A-C-C-P-A-C. It's Infection Associated Chronic Conditions Patient Advocacy Coalition, I think is the, I think is the last thing. IACPAC. And it's, it's, Organi you know, it's patient organizations for COVID and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome and Lyme disease and other stuff. And there are a lot of overlapping symptoms and there are, um, you know, there's, there's stuff that, you know, I, I was um, uh, lucky enough to, to go to something last June uh, the the NASM conference, National Association of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, had a conference in uh, Washington D.C. to to look at this uh, these overlapping things. The the co you know co it was really it was really pushed by COVID because COVID was just affects so many people that that you know they couldn't they couldn't ignore it anymore, and so. There were people there. There were people that I recognize, you know, from the CDC, from the NIH, and all these people were there saying, "Oh yeah, there's a lot of overlap between these conditions." And these, from some of them, the same people that I've heard over the years say, "Oh, you know, chronic Lyme isn't real." And uh, so there is a there is a movement to to look at these these things differently. And there is there are some exciting developments in terms of research, and and there were, one of the things that they found during COVID is that there was there was a lot of overlap. Sometimes somebody would go to the doctor, assume they got sick, they assume they have COVID, they give them a COVID test, it's not COVID. Go home, you're still sick. You come back. Well, we'll give you another COVID test. And it wasn't until maybe they, you know, had three negative tests that somebody would say, oh, maybe it's something else. And it in many, not everybody, but in many cases, it turned out they had Lyme disease. Yeah. And so you could you could also have Lyme disease and COVID at the same time. <laughs> and also, you know, during the time of COVID, there we were all going for walks outside because we weren't supposed to be around other people. You know, so so there was um in in terms of of I don't remember exactly the wording that you said, but as I said, I had no I have no problem with that. I think that it is it is complex and that our bodies are complex and the microbes are complex. And you take, uh, you know, Dr. Horowitz's 16 points were toxins and all these other things, you know, some it and it all and it all gets wrapped up <laughs> in in uh, with your own genetics. And and so, you know, maybe you have some genetic predisposition to something and this, you know, so I mean, it's it's really complex stuff. Yeah, and I. But not only not only our own genetics, the microbes have the have the capacity, and we're going to talk more about this with Rachel on how neuroplasticity can be used against us, but so can epigenetics, right? Because what's happening, these microbes are actually changing our genetic presentation, and in many cases, just changing our genes, right? So I mean, it's just there's just so much here. This is such a you know, 
you know, a powerful, powerful set of microbes and the way they change us and the way we have to change ourselves back to get healthy is really powerful, right? Which is really what we're talking about here is all these different steps, right? Because, you know, again, to use Matt's term, all these things are dogpiling on Rachel, right? I mean, she was just like being, being suppressed, her health, her physical and emotional health are being suppressed by all of these things. And we have to take one off at a time, right? So, you know, you get, you, you get your antibiotic treatment and you're getting your chiropractic treatment and you're getting your mold treatment. And now we have all kinds of chemical sensitivities that we hadn't dealt with before that, you know, Rachel is now getting her life back and, 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 uh, and she's working and she's working in her dream career. I and mean, we haven't built out, uh, you know, some of the other things I want to talk about how you were emotionally resilient and how we, you know, we get to the title of your book. Uh, but there were, there were a couple of really cool things that were happening in your life. And one of the things that was happening is you were studying American sign language, right? And you were doing that while you were on your, on your, um, on your healing journey. And that ultimately became a career path for you. Uh, so you, you know, you, 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 you're working at a school and you're doing what you want to do. And then you're getting really sick again, right? And uh, and you have all of these chemical sensitivities. So can you build that out for us? And now, uh, and Matt's going to take you through the MCAS piece. Oh wait, yeah. Am I waiting for you or for Matt? Oh yeah, Rachel, if you don't mind jumping in on that piece, and then we'll, then we'll go down the MCAS a little bit further. So wait, what did you said, Rich? What did you just build out for us? Just build out for us. What was how, you know you're you're at the stage in your career where you're finally now going to work right you're doing yeah. what you wanted to do you're doing your dream job you're working you know you're working in a school and in in, in, the, in the speech language uh, pathology arena and uh, now you're getting sick as a dog right even though you've gotten you dealt with the Lyme you dealt with the mold you dealt with all these other issues but now you're getting sick again so what is that Yeah, it was so demoralizing because it's like and it's it's interesting because you know, they use so many Clorox wipes in schools. And so it's like, I started just being so angry that everyone used Clorox wipes. And it's like, I was just blaming the fact that you keep using these Clorox wipes and I'm getting sick and it's because of your Clorox wipes. And, um, and so that it's just, it just started affecting everything. I mean, I would go to work in the morning without burning hands and my face burning without breathing issues. And as soon as I get there, it would just be bad all day. And then I would come home and I'd cover myself in ice packs and just like cooling towels. And it was just every day was so hard to get through because of the symptoms, because of the chemicals. Um, and it was so it was, it was so devastating because any school is going to have chemicals. So it was like, how am I, I finally got here. I finally got to where I want to be at a school I really loved. And it's like, I couldn't change. I tried. I couldn't change the school to not use the chemicals. And I printed out paperwork of all these other things they could do, but they didn't want to hear it. And so, um, it was just really hard because I was like, where do we go from here? If I can't work at any school doing, you know, my job, um, so it was really, yeah, challenging. And then what led you to become more familiar with mast cell activation syndrome, or as we call it, MCAS, and then the connection between DNRS or brain retraining and how it can help alleviate, if not eliminate these MCAS symptoms that you were experiencing in the school place. 
Yeah. So I first, I got the diagnosis from my mold doctor um, who knew a lot about, cause a lot of his mold patients were having mast cell issues. Um, and so I got the diagnosis from him. And at first, you know, we tried all these different like drugs and different things to antihistamine things to try to help with it. But everything we did was just getting worse. And so then he put me on uh, like an elimination diet to try to get all of the histamine gone. And if you, if you eliminate all the food, then maybe it won't happen. But the more foods that I eliminated, the more problem I was having. And so it was just getting worse. And I just had no food to eat while it was getting worse. And so then when I began learning about the dynamic neural retraining system, and, and there's other systems out there as well, that's not the only brain retraining and brain rewiring program, but it's the one that I did. Um, but when I started learning about that, then uh, I realized that like, even though I know it's well-meaning when a doctor says, do this elimination diet, what it was doing in my brain was it was just reinforcing that all of these foods are dangerous and they're going to hurt me. And so you're trying to eliminate them and you become hyper aware all the time of, I can't eat that. Oh, I can't eat this. And, and all you're doing is having your brain just spiral and be telling you, you know, that you can't eat that because it's going to make you sick. So then when you have it, it's going to make you sick. And you just keep reinforcing well, that. Rachel, the, isn't there two sides to that? Because, uh, because I, I think, and I want Matt to, continue to participate in the MCAS part of the conversation because, um, you know, there, there is a physiological and an emotional element to, to the MCAS, right? Because what was happening is you were immunosuppressed when you had, when you had, um, you know, all of the microbes, you know, you had both Lyme and Bartonella at least, right? You had, you had, you had the, the, the um, mold toxins that you were dealing with, right? So you had these microbes, you had mold toxins, right? So your immune system is suppressed. You need help, and this is why you're in antibiotics for 10 years. Now that is resolved, and now your immune system is going crazy, right? Now we have an overactive immune system, right? And now your body is now responding to food as if it is an allergy, right? And now you're now it's now it's hyperactive. That we have to figure out, you know, how that slows down. And I'm just wondering whether or not it was just DNRS or whether DNRS helped you with the piece of the emotional injury that you suffered as a result of now having your immune system essentially attacking the foods that were, you know, and, and do you think this was leaky gut and, and there were, there were, there were, uh, you know, there was a, an immune response to foods you're eating because you went down to four foods, right? I mean, one of the, again, one of the really painful, scary parts, so I'm reading this book, it's like, oh shit, this kid's not going to be able to eat anything at all. You know, we yeah. down to four, right? I mean, what do we have left? She's going to starve to death, right? I mean, that's where that's, by the way, it was really well written, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's like, oh, what? You know, now yeah. it's now it's now her immune system is overreacting, right? So give us the the physiological piece versus the emotional piece because I think they're separate. So we tested for leaky gut and it came back that that wasn't it. And we tested okay. like SIBO. I don't remember what that stands for, but small um, intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So we tested for SIBO and it was like, I was adamant that that was going to come back. Oh, absolutely. That's, you know, we're having these issues. Nope. Came back that I didn't have that. So like all these things we were testing for and it wasn't coming back. Um, and again, we were going on the antihistamine things and they, it helped like a little bit, but it, it didn't help it enough. Like I was still breaking out into a rash and still having all of these things. So then when I went to DNRS with DNRS, they suggest that if you're able to, 
to kind of stop the supplements if you can, just to kind of see what DNRS can do without all the other stuff. Cause that's the thing. You have so many things going on at once. What do you say it is? So I didn't feel like most of the supplements I was on were even doing anything at the time. So I stopped a hundred percent of every single thing that I was on. So I, I had no pills, no anything. Um, and I started DNRS and I mean, I got all my foods back. I do not break out into a rash. I do not get sick. And I mean, and I never went back on those, okay. any of these but, but, you know, see, you know, when we do an elimination diet, for example, as we're eliminating foods, then, you know, so, so part of what I'm wondering about, and I'd like you to sort of weigh in on this as well is, do you think it was possible that the supplements you were taking, which were, which may have been antimicrobial, uh, may have been supercharging your immune system. Your immune system was then responding to foods as if they were allergens. And then once you eliminated those those um, those supplements, you you had you had a more stable immune system, and that's why you got better, and not necessarily just from the neural retraining. I mean, I don't know. It's hard because people reach out all the time and they're like, you know, do you think if you didn't do any of the other stuff, would DNRS have gotten you better? And that's such a hard question because I know there are people who haven't done all the stuff that I've done and they just did DNRS and some got better, some didn't. For me, I always say, I think everything I did played a part in helping. I think I did so much detox. I did, I was on so many different meds that, you know, scientifically you can say that med should be doing this good thing for you. Um, so I think all of it played a part. And I think because I did DNRS when I did, I had done so much treatment for so many different things before it, that I think I did DNRS at the perfect time because I think I had been set up for success um, by doing everything that I had done before it. Yeah, I agree. And I'll use Dr. Carnahan's term. You know, she she's a she calls herself a highly sensitive person and she says she has a, a tiny toxic bucket, right? So she's just more prone to be triggered by certain chemicals, whether it's cologne, whether it's perfume, whether it's laundry detergent, whether it's, you know, car fumes, right? And I look back at my childhood and I can tell you, me and my sister in a family of three, my brother was the exception, we were always sensitive to things like my grandfather's cologne, right? It would always be like, oh, come on, Gramps, like, what are you doing? So it didn't really, it didn't have any impact on our health, but it always sort of bothered us. So when I got sick with Lyme, I became almost intolerant to those things where they put me into a neurological spin when I was exposed to those toxins so, or, or those, those chemicals. So I think it's just our, our bodies. I think in some cases, many of us, maybe yourself, Rachel, I think myself for sure, we're sort of predisposed or at a disadvantage when we're born because of our, our biology to these types of, of things, right? And then I think for me, as I started to rebuild my immune system and get stronger, my reaction to those things is even better than it was when I was, you know, pre-Lyme at this point. So I think I've seen that in my own life. But to answer Rich's question, I'm curious what you think on, on Rachel and Dorothy as well, is do you think that some of these herbal supplements, right? Like, for example, echinacea, we know, or, you know, um, uh, there's others that are out there that have the ability to supercharge the immune system, which is good if you're immune compromised and you need to bolster the immune system. But if you're having all these MCAS reactions, do you think some of the supplements were making your immune system even more overreactive, resulting in you becoming even more sensitive to all these things that were triggering your MCAS reactions? I was going to say, I, yeah. I feel like I can't even Who knows? Yeah. I, I like I Dorothy's answer. <laughs> I know, Who knows, yeah. right? 
<laughs> I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. I don't know. And I strive to have, like I said earlier, a really good medical team that I trust to make sure because they're the ones who went to school for, to know all of the ins and outs of that. Um, so, yeah, so I don't really, I don't, I don't know about that, but it's interesting. Yeah, and don't you think, Dorothy, it's interesting that, uh, that, you know, different treatments are going to be helpful at different times, right? And, and if we're going to use, if we're going to use this analogy of, of taking one dog off the pile after another, after another, after another, you know, you don't stay with a consistent treatment. It's something that was serving you six months ago is not necessarily going to serve you today. And that's not necessarily going to serve you tomorrow, right? Where we have to pivot not only from, you know, from treatment to treatment, but I think mindset to mindset as well, which we're going to get to in a minute. So, Dorothy, give me your thoughts about, you know, pivoting from treatments and how we really can't tease out. Because look, when I was reading the book, I was like, hmm, what happened here? Right. And that's why I couldn't wait to talk to you guys. Uh, is this, is this, is, do we entirely cr credit the neural retraining? Or is there something else here going on that we need to think about and talk about just so folks who are listening to this think that, that you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's a combination of things we have to look at when we're on at this stage of our journey? Well, I think there's always a combination of things <laughs> going on. Um, I I think in her case, it and, and I was, she was living in Arizona when she was doing that and I was in California. And so I was not seeing her in person, but we were, we were, you know, talking um, regularly and she was, you know, she, she dove into doing the DNRS really just with religious fervor. Well, and that's everything, Dorothy, right? I mean, I, I mean, Rachel do dove into everything with religious <laughs> fervor and I do want to talk yeah. about that, how important yeah. that is, but let's yeah. stay with this. Yeah. So, uh, and, and actually she, she has a number, she doesn't keep up her blog anymore, but they're still on her website. She, she has uh, some blogs that she was writing during the process of doing, um, you know, doing DNRS and she made little videos and, you know, all this, you know, so that's, that's, I think that's all on there, mm -hmm. isn't it? Uh, for people, to, <laughs> excuse me, that want to go for uh, a deep dive into that. But it it really seemed like I remember it seemed to me that it was just like a week. You'd been doing it for a week and you said that she had gone to school and that yeah. the, somebody had, you know, the cleaning person had something. And it took me longer to notice that I was next to it. Than, and it was like I had my first little breakthrough Yeah, within about a week or so. Yeah. And so so it really seemed like it was the DNRS. And I mean, I, I'm not one to say that it, everybody would have that same result, you know, I mean, but that was, that was what, that was how, how it worked for her. And uh, interestingly, I, I happened to meet a woman in California uh, about right before Rachel started DNRS. And this woman was very involved with um, trying to get chemicals out of schools and I am not against people getting chemicals out of schools, but she was telling me that she had um, this, you know, that, that she was chemically sensitive herself and, you know, various, you know, that had been her entry to this. And actually, I guess you had just started it and uh, the DNRS. And I, I, so I was talking to her and I thought, well, that's really interesting. I said, you know, my daughter has these issues and she has just started this thing called DNRS. 
And the woman said, oh yeah, I tried that. It didn't help. And so I, you know, I, that, that was the whole discussion that we had. I didn't know if it was going to help Rachel at that point. Well, he or she started noticing things and it was better. And I had another occasion to, to see that woman. And, um, and I talked to her and, and I said, uh, you know, my daughter's doing this program and it's, it's really helped her a lot. And, and I said, uh, you, um, you said you did it and didn't help. She said, yeah, it didn't help. And I said, well, did you, you know, something, I made some reference because they have these videos that you watch, like 14 hours of videos that you watch before you start doing it. And I said something about, and then Rachel sent me the things when she was done with them. So, you know, I was looking at them too. And I said, um, you know, so, so, you know, did you watch the videos or this or that? And she said, Oh, I watched part of one video, but I just didn't have patience for that. Well, not, you know, that, 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 right, that right, yeah. that's her own life and she's going to do what you do. But you say, oh, yeah, I tried it and it didn't help. If you didn't even finish watching the videos, you didn't do it. <laughs> right, no, no, that's for sure. But, you know, look, but that's that's another important part of I think this is a nice transition, Dorothy, because, you know, we've talked with uh, many guests about neural retraining and, you know, we, we've also developed. Um, here a, a protocol that we're going to be releasing uh, in the near future um, about timing of, of of treatment, right? And uh, I remember, for example, when we when I interviewed Matt Ashley Marber, one of the things I said was, well, "Hey, you know, what, when did you do the neural retraining?" She says, "Well, I certainly didn't do it in the beginning. I was so sick, I couldn't add something else to it, right?" Yeah. So I, I think that you know, timing is significant, especially when you're going to when you're going to use a rigorous protocol like the protocol you use, Rachel. You have to be at a certain level of of health in order to be able to have oh, the religious fervor you would need in order to be able to to be successful with this with this disease, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Matt just corrected me, by the way. I said Ashley Marble was actually Ashley Bellinger who was correcting me on that. So I, sorry, Ashley's uh, for, for, uh, for citing the wrong one of you. Yeah, but it was Ashley Bellinger. So I could not have done that. I was just too sick, right? So you're at a stage where you could do that. And I'd also argue, Rachel, I'd like your reaction that you probably wouldn't want to do this until you're at the later stage of the rehabilitation phase of, of, of your journey, because there are so many there are so many emotional injuries that you're suffering while you're on this journey that you're going to have to do the neural retraining at the end anyway so you might as well maybe you know gotta mop it all up i mean you gotta you gotta you're gonna have to clean out the brain i mean you have to do that right and and i know that sounds a little little um coarse but it really is something you have to do if you're going to get better right you have to retrain your brain if you don't retrain your brain, you're not going to get better. But the question is, when? So, Rachel, is it really at the later stages? Uh, not only because you're not well enough to do it, but because you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go through a cleansing anyway. Well, I think everybody is. Yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things. Everybody is different, so I don't feel like there is like a one size fits all that you can say. Everyone should wait. Or, you know, it's like if somebody is wanting to go for it, I I don't believe any harm can come from even if you are at your sickest and you are bedridden and you go for it because the thing is, I don't think it's going to hurt you, and it might actually just help and give you tools that you can continue to use. I have continued to use this even after I stopped DNRS. There have been complications that have come up that I've restarted it or I've just use some of my tools that I've learned from DNRS. Well, so but, I but 
I, I agree with you, but let, but let's just let's be blunt about this, right? Is when you were young and you were really sick and you were bed bound, would you have been able to put oh, the kind of focus? No, in absolutely not. No, I right. I could not have done this, and honestly, I would not have done this until when I did it. I was in the perfect place mentally to do it; that I was willing to do it. I was not willing to do most of the treatments that were way easier than DNRS back in the day. And right. so, I mean, like it was hard enough to get me to go gluten-free for a little bit as, you know, a teen right. or whatever. And so absolutely like you, it has to be that you are able to put in like the most work to at that time. And right. so, so I would never have done that. It's a, it's a great protocol. It did allow you to rewire your brain, but maybe earlier on, maybe working with a therapist would have been helpful. Maybe, maybe yeah. hypnotism would have been helpful. Yeah. Maybe there would have been a less rigorous element of this retraining that could have been available to you. That yeah. would have been helpful. That didn't require or you to be you know, to be a convert, right? Yeah. And also that's the thing is that there are so many ways to retrain your brain and something before DNRS, which we talked very little about in my book, um, that I worked with a, a chiropractic neurologist, also sometimes called a functional neurologist. And what he and I were doing, I was having this weird issue where my left arm was just not communicating with the rest of my body. And what, do you think I was going to get there, Rachel? You thought I was going to get there? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I worked with him. So that's something, sometimes I will recommend that to people. I always recommend that to people, but there'll be people that will say, oh, you know, I have like this 14 year old daughter and I feel like she should do DNRS. And it's like, I think that's a very challenging thing to ask for a 14 year old, but a 14 year old can probably go hang out with a cool functional neurologist and be doing all these different games that can help re rewire their brain in other ways. So all there's right. not just See? one way to do it. Right. Because and, 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 I'm sorry, Dr. Yeah. If I could just say she did the thing with the arm and the functional neurologist and we think he's great. Yeah. You know, he's 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 a great guy. And and everything that he did was was wonderful. But that and and that worked and that was a kind of, of, of rewiring of the brain, although I don't think he really called it that. Um but that didn't do anything for the, uh, she's still the food getting, and the chemicals. I was with him. She was working yeah. with him and she was saying, I've got all these other problems too. Yeah. And now he refers people to DNRS specifically. Yeah, no, but, but Dorothy, couldn't it be, couldn't we, can we have a focus retraining versus a general retraining? And, and, and couldn't, couldn't the, couldn't the, the, the functional um, chiropractor have been focused on the, functional limitations that she was having with the arm issue and not the more broad retraining that the NRS and some of these other protocols will make available to somebody on the journey? Yeah, it was just, you know, again, everybody's everybody's individual and it's it's what their little combination of needs yeah. is. Well, but, but in, but in but, fairness, yes, we, we are all bio-individuals, but we are all, we all have more in common with each other than we don't, right? We are all human beings. We we all have, you know, uh, we are 99.9% .9 genetically similar. So, you know, we, we here at Thick Bootcamp really think there are patterns that you can follow or formulas that you can follow that will work for you. And I think Rachel, quite frankly, is an example of that. I think, see, I, I was reading your book from a formulaic standpoint, right? I've read many other books. For example, I read Bite Me by Allie Hilfiger, and we and we and we interviewed Allie at length in the same way that we're interviewing the two of you. And you'd be amazed at how similar your patterns of healing are. So mm -hmm. I think there are patterns, Dorothy. I think there are formulas. And I think, you know, within each step of a formula, there has to be 
Um, you know, there has to be flexibility so that it will will meet your bio individual and your multi, you know, again, every one of us is going to have a, a, a very different, um, a, you know, microbiome. Every one of us is going to have a different set of germs spit into us. Every one of us is going to have a different set of emotional experiences that we're going to come to this with our, our, our form brain. But even so certainly within every step, we have to have some flexibility. But if you look at the people who heal and get better like Rachel, I promise you there's a pattern. There is a pattern. And I saw it in your book and I saw it very clearly in your book. But before we get there, let me walk back to a, to another piece that I wanted to talk to you about, Rachel, right? Because I did compliment you. Um, I did compliment you about, um, about being very religious about every protocol you make. You find a protocol, you believe in the protocol, and you do the protocol, right? And that's not something we always see in this community, right? And one of the things we we talk about at Take Bootcamp is being coachable, right? If you're an athlete, Rachel, I would love you to be my athlete. Why? Because if I told Rachel to do 400 push-ups before she came to practice, and that would make her a better soccer player, Rachel would do 400 push-ups for me, right? That's yeah. your personality, right? Well, that's something people in this community need to know, right? Once you find a treatment protocol, you find a doctor, a coach, a treatment protocol that is speaking to your onboard diagnostic system and, and your onboard, onboard diagnostic system is telling you this is going to work for you, you now must be religious. You must do everything your coach is telling you to do. And then when you get better or you get to the point where you go, then you find your next coach or you find your next doctor or you find your next protocol, but you have to do it. Right. And one of the dangers of this language that we hear in the community about being your own doctor is you now become what I call a cafeteria Catholic. Right. Where I like this part of the Bible. I like that part of the Bible. I like this part. No, 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 no. You're either Catholic or you're not. Right. <laughs> Same thing with the treatment protocol. You're either you're either you're either you either believe in the Rawls protocol or you don't do it all or don't do it. You either believe in DNRS or you don't do it or don't do it right so use your onboard diagnostic system find the, the the you know the coach the doctor the treatment that works for you and then be religious about it so tell me rachel is that really what you have to do to heal and is that really one of the important parts of your personality that have allowed you to now get your life back yeah and i i mean and it's i yes i i do believe that and it's hard because people like a lot of the times will reach out and say like you know how do i get how do I get my teen to want to do this? Like, how can I do that? And it's like, I don't know how to answer that. I just, my entire life have been that way that like, you know, well before I was sick, if someone like my soccer coach said, you do this, if I believed that that is an okay thing to do, I would do it. And so it's like, I don't know how to impart that wisdom to other people, but I absolutely believe that is one of the best qualities that make me successful to this day, especially in terms of health is because like, as you said, it's not just blindly following someone too. You have to also use your brain at a certain point. We say, you know what? We're done with this doctor. We're going to go somewhere else. But we do everything like that mold protocol to the letter, like every single thing until eventually I stopped working with him. And then I moved on to my functional neurologist. And like, we kind of we just made the choice that we were in a different place now. And so we stopped mid-treatment doing that and we moved forward. And so I do believe, and that's how I that's how I target all of my stuff. And for DNRS specifically, if you, if you don't put it all in, you're not gonna 
you're not going to get anything back. No, but Rachel, it's, it's everything, right? And again, it's another one of the patterns we saw with you, similar between you and Allie Hilfiger, right? Allie went from doctor to doctor to doctor, right? You went from doctor to doctor to doctor. And it doesn't mean doctor to doctor, it's protocol to protocol, because every single protocol and every single professional and every single coach is going to have their limitation, right? And because they're going to have the limitation, they're going to, you know, let them get you as far as they can get you, but then you move on. But this concept of being your own doctor, in my view, is a dangerous concept. You shouldn't be coming up with the protocol. You should be finding the people that have the protocols that are going to be speaking to you and you have to be coachable, right? So another one is, again, how do you, you said people are asking you, how do you, how, you know, how do you help people with that? Just the way you just explained it, be coachable, be coachable. And if you if you are coachable, you're going to get a good outcome. And if you're not going to be coachable, and you're always going to be finding, we have to strike this balance, right? I mean, another thing that I just loved about you know the conversation that uh, that you you were having with Matt, both you and uh, you, you Dorothy and, and you Rachel, is that you know you you kept saying you have to find the right doctor. I never heard either one of you say, despite saying in many cases, doctors in many cases sucked and they didn't believe me, or they believed me but they put they put ceilings on me or, you know, or, you know, like that, but you still said you need doctors, right? You're not going to be your own doctor. You need doctors. Just keep pivoting until you get to a place. Right. So we need to pivot and we need to be coachable. Right. Yeah. That's actually, actually a say, that's a good way of, of putting it. Cause I agree. You can't just be picking and choosing. Oh, well, you know, they said to do these 10 things. I'm going to do this and this. Eh, it didn't work. Well, did you do the 10 things exactly how they were laid out? You know, there's a, there's a reason. So if you don't, if you're not going to do it, then find somebody else. Right. But, and that's okay too. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's okay, but you gotta, you got you gotta do it. So Dorothy, as, as the mom in this, uh, and again, and I, you should be a proud mom because you have a, a coachable daughter. Right. But if I, if I had a baseball team, I'd want nine Rachel's right. Because I, I, I'd win <laughs> the game. I'd be, I'd be a brilliant coach because I have nine kids that are going to do whatever I tell her to do. Right. So, but, but as, as a parent, Give me your perspective on the importance of teaching your children to be coachable, teaching your children to, once they make a decision, stay with the decision and not take the pieces of it and be, as I was describing, the cafeteria Catholic. Well, it's interesting when you were saying that, you know, she's like that all the time in that when she was 13 and 14 and first sick, you know, there were she there were things she didn't want to do. <laughs> so it's not that she was always coachable, but actually, ultimately, she was, you know, ultimately, she would take she would she would take the medicine. Um, but though we had our moments. <laughs> <laughs> well, but Dorothy, like, but let's stay with that because I, I think it's an important part of the build out. Maybe she wasn't coachable because you weren't using the right protocol and her onboard diagnostic system was saying, this is not good for me and I'm going to fight it. Maybe that's where we need possibly, to be. Possibly. I, yeah, I could, I could see that. I, I used, would use different words than you used, but I mean, in my brain, but there've been times when there were times when she was really opposed to doing something and it's like the doctor wants you to do it. Well, there's a scene in there where she just decided she didn't want the pick line anymore. Yeah. And actually, and I had been, you know, really invested in it, like that that was going to be the thing that was going to make the difference. And um, when they pulled that that pick line, uh, they, you know, the doctor just put her, she'd been doing, you know, IV antibiotics, but he just sort of changed up her um you know, her, her oral antibiotics. And in a lot of ways, she seemed better. She seemed better in the, the next couple of, you know, the next couple of months. That's when she started doing her sign language class and things like that. So 
I have often wondered about that. Was that, you know, some kind of internal intelligence that was Absolutely. just telling her, you know, and so, but it can seem, it can seem like it's your child just being obstinate. obstinate. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is, look, you know, and it's, look, it's one thing to say we're going to believe, you know, the patient. It's another thing to really believe the patient. And I'm not saying it's to attack you, Dorothy, but you know what? Yeah. But, but, you know, she, you know, her body was telling her something. She's clearly a strong personality. She yeah. was going to push back and you were like, well, the doctor's saying this, you know, but, but yeah. the patient was saying no, you know, and, and, yeah. and, you know, so I, again, I think this is an important way of developing this because it's really hard to strike that balance between, you know, between as parents, when we're, when we're imposing something on our children and when we're not, and, uh, you know, when they can yeah. really make the decision and when they can, how do we take input from them? And it, it look, it's hard. It, it, it's, it, this is a terrible disease. So, so let's let's well and there were just I know there were some times when she was taking a zillion supplements, you know, pills, tablets, and she just I think we have this in the book, that there's just some point where it was like she just couldn't swallow it. It was right. like her, right. her body was and so it was we just eliminated all the supplements. She was down to a couple of oral antibiotics and she did continue to take those. And we just took a little holiday from from the others. And then eventually we added some back in. But I don't think, I mean, I think there was a point where we just never got up to that really big number because it's 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 too much. It's 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 hard for you know if if you're taking something short term, you know, you can like, you know, just kind of gut through, but day in and day out to be doing that at some point, your body rebels and says, I don't want to swallow anything more. And, and so there is that, um, you know, there is that kind of dance as a parent in terms of, you know, if you got a sick child, we're, we're putting our faith in what the doctor suggests. And so, you know, how much do you make somebody do something that they don't want to do? And so that, that and, and when when do you use that as a signal to pivot to the next doctor? Yeah, yeah. No, so, it, it's it's again, it's it's certainly not a science, but it's certainly a cool conversation to have, and something you know that I think is beautiful about what you all are passing on to the people who are now going to you know to follow the trail that you've all you you blazed, and it's a really powerful and beautiful trail, right? I mean, this book is really really well written, and it and it and it is so deep on so many different levels. I want to talk about another 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 part of the depth of this book. Um, and then I promise we will get to the NRS. Uh, and, and that is, Dorothy, that you love, you, you, you very powerfully describe the use of other people and resources and groups as sort of a sounding board for, um, you know, what is going on in Rachel's life to give you some input into what else you may want to want to use. So can you build that out for us? Um, how how being active, you know, in in the Lyme community was was vital to shortcutting uh, the process of of locating resources to help your daughter heal. Well, we already uh, mentioned the thing about the mold uh, in terms of the, that I had sent that material to somebody and, you know, got an answer back. I have, um, I do less of this now, but in the early days, I was very involved with the online groups, support groups, because I was just, 
seeking information. And that's where the information was. It was experience. It was the, the wisdom of the crowd. <laughs> yeah. And, and I still see that one of the things, uh, there's actually a lot of online support groups, but, but Lyme disease.org sponsors one and, uh, you know, through, through our website and, and um, I was, you know, I still see things in there uh, where somebody will have what seems like a really weird symptom or reaction or something. And they say, I don't really know what to do about this. And five people will chime in and give really good suggestions. Even if it's not exactly the same thing, they say, well, you might look at this because such and such, you know, this was my experience. And that is really valuable. That is, that, that is a really valuable thing. At the same time, I would say you have to take everything, you know, with a grain of salt. Just because something worked for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else. You know, when I, uh, I ran, um, for about eight years, I, I ran a, a patient support group in Sacramento. And there were people at that time, you know, these different, there's kind of these fads that come in with treatment. I haven't heard much about it lately, but if you've heard of the salt sea protocol, you take high amounts of salt and high amounts of vitamin C, and this is supposed to help you. And, and there's, there's reasons for that. And there are people, there's people that say that's terrible. There's people that say it's good. There was a fellow in our support group that said he did the, the, the salt sea protocol and it was a game changer for him. And he was telling us about it. And so there was another woman in the, there was a woman in the group who said, I'm going to do that. And she ended up in the hospital. <laughs> and so, although I think it's valuable to be in a support group, you can't, just take something, even if even if it worked for him, not you know being I mean? your own doctor. Yeah, you know that that there that and so, um, so anyway, but but I mean I do think that that hearing from somebody's real life experience is is good, but you have to take it, you you have to take it, um, you have to know yourself, you have to you have to educate yourself enough that you could listen to that and then say, hmm, maybe I'll try that. Or eh, I think I'm going to pass on that. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, and, and that's, that's part of what I wanted to build out, Rachel. Um, you know, I, I think we, we talked about having, having medical literacy in order to be able to be successful on this journey. It's one of the patterns we've seen. We, we, we've, um, we've, we've talked about, um, Talk about the 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 importance of um, of of having social support, but you know there is a downside to having social support, right? And the downside to social support is um, a you may be playing your own doctor, but b you know we we we're going to start now talking about protecting your brain from false beliefs, right? And unfortunately, in many cases, when you're in these groups, you have groups of people who are not feeling very well. Um, who are who are not necessarily um, you know emotionally healthy, and because they're not feeling well, they're not emotionally healthy. In many cases, I think they're uploading unhealthy things into each other's brains. Rachel, give me your reaction to that. Why it may be important to understand, it may be important to be in a social setting with other people of Lyme disease, but also understand not only that you shouldn't be acting as your own doctor, 
but you're also in a group of with a group of people who are not necessarily healthy. And if they may not be emotionally healthy, that part of social literacy requires you to understand that you have to protect your own brain. Yeah. So uh, for that reason, I am a part of a bunch of groups that I have unfollowed. So none of them show up in my, you know, my news feed on either Instagram or Facebook. Uh, because when I began my DNRS journey, I learned about that. I'd never really known. Like I knew that I would see all these people that were just, you know, offloading all of the hurt from their lives online. And I knew that that didn't make me feel good, but I didn't really have the wherewithal to understand that I didn't need to see that and that that was actually potentially, you know, harming my own brain and, and ingraining some of those cycles um, or those pathways in my own brain. Um, so when I started DNRS, I went through every single health and Lyme related um, website or person. And I just unfollowed. So even like, you're still technically friends with them, you know, but they don't, it doesn't show up at all. Um, and I've just kept it that way because I, I was able to learn about how that was really negatively impacting me and my own health um, by seeing all of that. And so it's a really interesting balance because like we said, like community is so important and, and being able to get information can be so helpful and to share information from people like me that I, I can tell you information that might potentially help you when I'm talking about my story, but I also try very hard to explain my own um, health in a specific way that is hopefully inspiring and hopeful to people and not um, just blah, on top of them. So <laughs> now let, let's, let's, let's now build out the, uh, the, neurological injury that you suffered and most people suffer when they are on Lyme disease journey. Matt certainly suffered, right? So we, we have a binary brain, right? And our brain is either going to be in the sympathetic expression of our nervous system or the parasympathetic expression of our nervous system, right? Or fight or flight or rest and digest is another way of describing it, right? And because this disease, the, you know, the, these microbes are attacking us, our bodies under attack, and our, our brain doesn't know the some doesn't know the difference between something that's real or something that we're imagining. It doesn't know something between a lion or a a a um you know a visible to the human eye microbe, right? We just know that we're under attack, right? So your body was under attack from your childhood, and that had an impact on your brain, right? I mean, we we always love to talk about neuroplasticity as a great feature of our brain, right? especially when we're under 25, where we like our, we can rewire our brain very, very uh, aggressively. The downside to a neurally plastic brain is that it can be rewired for us in a way that's yeah. not necessarily going to serve us, especially when you're under 25, which you were, right? So talk about how, um, how these bugs and the experiences that you were having as a result of these bugs um, with doctors, with treatment, with all kinds of conflict that was that was created, how that rewired your brain so that it, your brain was no longer serving you and you were living all of your life in the sympathetic expression of your nervous system. Yeah. So, um, you know, you hear a lot of times people saying like, oh, I'm always in constant fight or flight. And it's, I heard that all the time and I never really understood that. And I'd had some doctors say, oh, I think you're just always in fight or flight, but I never really understood what that meant or what that could mean for my health uh, moving forward. But yeah, when you have chronic health issues, it impacts every level of you. I mean, like in terms of like doctors and everything, you know, like I, my brain still, even with all my rewiring instantly, you say the word doctor 
and I'm all of a sudden on edge. And all of a sudden my brain now, now that I know I'm talking about a doctor, my brain is firing in certain ways because of how it has learned from all of the history um, that I was trained very well growing up about what doctors could be like in the worst way. Um, and so that set a whole pathway in my brain um, so that now when another person who has not had my past, you know, you say something about a doctor, they're sitting there eating their cereal and their brain is not in any way telling them anything. I'm sitting there eating my cereal. And then all of a sudden my brain, you know, starts going down a different um, path. And I, that was something that I did not know about until starting DNRS. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's just been, it's been very eye-opening to be able so to. Let, let's revisit that piece of it. Right. So, so, you know, for someone with my experience, you may bring up a doctor. I'm like, wow, they're really wonderful, smart people have always been kind to me and always been helpful to me. Right. That that's what my, that's what my pathway would say. I mean, your path may, your pathway was doctors are bad. I'm now triggered into overdrive. And, yep. um, and then you would, because you, you, you are now in fight or flight right now, what's happening yeah. when you're in fight or flight is, um, is that everything is being suppressed, including your immune system, right? Your immune system starts functioning, your digestive system starts functioning, everything starts yep. functioning, right? Because when you're in fight or flight, your body is just focusing on the threat and giving 100% of the energy to protect you uh, from the threat, right? And that's what's happening. And so it's immunosuppressive, right? So then we then we have the other piece that I do want to build out again in, in more detail, which is you had doctors who were kind to you, who believed that you were sick, but told you you were going to have to live a life that was not going to be as full as it could be. And, and, and you described it really, really beautifully in the book. I, I, I want to find that while we're talking about this. Um, and um, and you said um, you said, without a doubt, that misguided advice from a particular practitioner who thought she was being helpful had conditioned me to lower the height of my jump. And we're going to talk about that in a second. I wish that instead, all those years ago, she had told me that in my future, I would climb mountains, that I would be free from pain, that I would uh, rappel down 200 feet, 200 foot waterfalls, that I would eat foods from different cultures while traveling around the world, that I'd ride a zip line high above the treetops because that's what was really waiting for me and that I should be working toward all of that all along, right? I'm crying as I'm reading it, right? <laughs> Talk to me about how that well-intentioned doctor had also created a pathway in your brain that had to be cleared out before you could get to a place where you are now and how DNRS was that tool that you had used. Yes. So, um, so, you know, the doctors we've talked about, um, you know, doing her, doing their best to help us, um, but had instilled or had ingrained this uh, this idea, and not just an idea, a full belief that I kept for you know the next decade, um, that I would just you know be able to kind of coast by, and and you'd have some dips, and then you'd try to get back to you know doing okay again, um, and that that was what I should be striving towards. So that was what my brain was striving towards to be just doing okay, and and for the next ten years. That is exactly what happened too. It was just when I was doing quote well, I was just getting by, um, and and so that really laid down the framework in my brain to just have that be what I was aiming for. That was the goal was to just be okay and and to just make do. So now um, let's talk about those beliefs, right? Because beliefs are really important here, and because our brain really is two things. 
It's a search engine and it's a goal achieving machine, right? And when we set the bar low for ourselves or we allow somebody to set the low the bar low for us, what happens is we can now only achieve that which is the bar that has been set for us, right? And once that bar has been set for us and that's where our neural pathways are, we have to use a tool to clear that out so that we can set a higher bar for ourselves, right? It is a, it is a, it is a goal achieving machine. But the other piece of this that I wanna to talk to you about is how it is a search engine, right? And because what's happening is our senses are receiving a great deal of information, but our brain is narrowing the amount of information we have and our reticular activation system is only allowing us to see that which it is that we're focusing on, right? So talk to us about how that bar was something that limited not only how you, the goals that your brain were, were seeking to achieve, but what information you were receiving while you're going through this, going through this, um, this journey of healing until you did the NRS. Um, well, in, in terms of the information I was receiving, like you said, you're only kind of able to see what you're focusing on. So I would tune out all of the people or information that would say, oh, no, here's a person with Lyme that's running a marathon. Well, I can't do that because this is how high I can go. And then here's somebody else who's doing this. So it's like you really just filter out all the info. You don't even let it sink in because that's not in the realm of possibility of what you've been believing. So that was, I think, probably the most interesting part is that even though you might see all of this information and, and learn about all of these other stories, and I think a lot of people do that, is and then you just kind of filter it out. Well, that's not that's not able to be me because this little ball is what I've got. So uh, I, I do want to thank you for that paragraph. Right? And, I, and, and part of the reason I want, I want to thank you for that paragraph is because it was so beautifully written and it was so powerful to watch you um, you know, feel that way, right? But the other reason I wanted to thank you for it is one of the reasons we've been attacked, Matt and I, is that Tick Bootcamp has been called the heal or bust um, uh, platform. Uh, and we've been criticized for that, right? And I was kind of like, for a while, we've been kind of sensitive to that criticism that, you know, are we, you know, are we hurting people by encouraging them to set the bar too high? And, you know, you know, are, are, you know I, I mean, I was really having doubts about whether or not you know, our philosophy was right. And then I wrote, I read that and I want to show you what I wrote. Wow, wow, wow is what I wrote <laughs> down there, right? Because yeah. that was the most validating thing I had ever read about what we believe, which is no one should be setting a low bar for anyone else, that we should be encouraging everyone to have the outcome that you had described in that paragraph. And, um, and um, you know, we are, we are now firmly back in the, healer bust uh, uh, philosophy because of you, Rachel, uh, because that's what no. we believe we should be, we should be doing as, uh, as advocates in this community. Um, so thank you. So I, I want to talk to you about one more thing. Um, you've been with us for many hours and it's, uh, and as you can tell, I keep you for many more hours, uh, but I want, to, I want to talk to you about one more thing, which is, uh, which is um, uh, time, right? Uh, Tony Robbins teaches that time is an emotion, right? And I've always thought, you know, that's kind of an interesting perspective on time. And he said, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes time will fly by. Like you're, when you're in, a, you're in a moment where you really love a movie or you're with people that you, you know, that you that you really love being with. I have experience, time disappears. And other times it's like, you know, you know, like every minute is a drag, right? So he argues that time is an emotion. And you two actually wrote a book that very powerfully talks about time, right? And being in the past versus the present versus the future. 
right? And and um, Dorothy, you talked about um, you talked about how important it was never to talk about the future with Rachel when she was at her sickest point. That anytime you tried to talk to her about going to college or you talked to her about you know a future that that was triggering to her, and she would she would behave very aggressively in response to you and you got to the point where you were just sort of getting through day by day or moment by moment talk to us about uh that piece of of how you had to stay present oriented in order to be able to support your daughter at that point and then how you then were able to pivot over to being more future oriented well um yeah you 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 ask good questions <laughs> rich um you know, it was, she was, there were times that, you know, maybe we didn't describe as much in the book as we could have, but there were times when she would just, just fly off the handle. She would just go ballistic. And we were trying to keep things on an even keel. And one of the things that would upset her immeasurably is if you talked too much about the future someday that you would do something because she didn't believe she had a future. And it, you know, we, we finally figured that out and we just found that it wasn't, um, you know, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't productive for us to say, you know, what about college? She, you know, she was in high school. Uh, she finally, she was, out of the wheelchair before your junior year, I yeah, think. 11th yeah, grade. yeah. So eleventh year, but but up until that time, it was just that she just thought, you know, she just this is where you know this was this was her this was her lot in life, and um, you know, I realized that there are some people that you know, if you're in a car accident or any number of things, where you you might be in a wheelchair for your whole life, and that you can still have a good life. Uh, but it's it's that I really, I, you know, I had to believe that life would be different for her, that we that we would that things would get better. But I had to moderate what I said around her about that kind of thing. And it was more like we just had to um, just deal with today's reality <laughs> and and so it was um yeah that was and so I don't know if you want me to go into it there was one time where she was at school and they were this was at the high school and and she, they were supposed to they were in the library and they were supposed to be looking up colleges and she was interested in sign language and we had talked a little bit about we were assuming she would go to community college near us and so she was looking up that they in fact one of the community colleges had quite a program in in sign language and she was she was looking at that online and the counselor came over and said oh don't look at a community college you want to go to a four-year college which 
you know, it's really an asinine thing to say to anybody, you know, and, you know, she didn't know what their personal circumstances were or financial circumstances right. or, you know, any number of other things. But Dorothy, when I read it, it sounded like a well-intentioned person, like like Rachel's well-intentioned doctors were setting, setting, you know, I mean, look, anytime we're in a position where we're either setting a ceiling for someone or setting a flaw for someone, we're not being good people, right? So in one case, her doctor was setting a ceiling for her. In another case, a doctor was setting a flaw, I mean, a, a teacher or, or guidance council is creating a flaw for her, right? We shouldn't be doing that for other people. Yeah, yeah. And so there was, uh, so when she came home, you know, I picked her up from school and, you know, we, she was quiet all the way home. And so I just made random conversations about other things. I didn't know what she was upset about. And when we got home, she finally told me about what the, the counselor had said. And she was very angry and hurt and, crying and everything and 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 I just said I wasn't sure whether I could say this because I'd always shied away from it but I said you know I just you know we have a different picture of things and that you know I I envision that you know you're you're going to be walking and you're going to she really likes the color green and I said you could have a little green Volkswagen car and 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 you know you're gonna you're gonna go to community college and and everything and I just kind of spun out this little this little vision and I didn't know you know with experience she could have gotten very angry with me for saying those things but she didn't she was kind of quiet for a while and then she said does it have to be a VW? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's pause there. This is a really important point right now, right? Because the way Rachel described herself up until that point is <laughs> as crushed, weak, and defeated, right? That's why you describe yourself in the book, Rachel. And now we have this little step into a place where you're now beginning to have belief. Instead of being present-oriented and focusing on your journaling, and I think there's an upside and a downside to journaling where you're sort of commemorating everything, your mom allows you to take the step into seeing a brighter future, right? Talk to us about what that taught you and how that was really a vital element of your healing journey. Well, I I, I remember my mom would, she really wanted that green VW bug. So every time when we'd be driving, yeah, she'd be like, there's your future car. And it was, and it was, it, as we said, it was hard for me. I did not ever envision myself being able to drive or being healthy enough to go out and, you know, live that life. But it was always just kind of little things that she'd plant. And it's, it helped me to know that she somehow believed it would get better. And so that was, that was helpful for me. Right, because but because the truth the truth is you were not crushed, weak, and defeated, right? Because what you now know from looking at things in retrospect is that you were what? I was resilient. <laughs> which is the title of the book, right? Yep, finding resilience, which is that the name or the word resilient um, is important to me because my online presence, I I'm resiliently Rachel. Um, and I, I think uh, that's a really great word. And I think it's also a very true word to who I am. And, uh, and Rich, I'll tell you why I, I love this so much. And I really did love that part of the story, which is why I'm, I'm so happy with the way your mother just described it, which is um, one of the personal development um, experts that I'm studying, one of the OGs argues that belief is not something that we find. We have belief. It's uh, w w What we have to do is we have to 
understand that we have to define the beliefs that are serving us versus the beliefs that are not serving us. But we all have beliefs, right? You had a belief that you were that you were crushed, weak, and defeated. But the truth is, you were really resilient, and it was always there. And it was, and you needed your mother to give you these little pieces, not overwhelm you, which would make <laughs> you go crazy, but yeah. just give you enough of the little pieces so you can finally see that there was a belief pattern that would serve you. And it was, and, and, and then once you, once, once you saw a belief pattern that would serve you, you saw that, that the, that the crushed, weak and defeated uh, belief was a false belief and you never had it again. Yeah. <laughs> Really, a really a beautiful story. I mean, I I can't tell you how much I loved reading your book, how much I've loved this conversation. And because you've been with us so long, and I want to allow you to go back to your day, I am <laughs> going to let you go because I I, I have so many more questions that I that I ask you. But again, I want to thank both of you for writing this book. It is absolutely beautiful. It is something that we're going to use as a resource, and we're going to encourage people to um, read and use as a resource for their family. Um, I want to th thank you, Dorothy, for all the work that you do for this community. You're a, you're a beautiful human being who's just giving more than anyone can ask you to. And the work that you're doing is just unbelievably uh, fantastic. So thank the two of you for everything that you're doing. Yes, thank you. Rich and Matt, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today. And we just really appreciate the work that you're doing and for having us on.